Tonight's episode of Colors of the Dark is brought to you by Messed Up Puzzles. If you haven't explored jigsaw puzzles as a constructive way to pass all this time inside or haven't found any sick and twisted enough for your taste, Messed Up Puzzles has you covered. Messed Up Puzzles are thousand-piece do-it-yourself masterpieces gouged from horror, grindhouse, and cult classics like Creepshow, Maniacs, Zombie, The Beyond, Suspiria, and many more. They even have the filthy puzzle from pieces. And if blood and guts somehow aren't your thing, they also have more uplifting puzzles, like a whole line dedicated to Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. Order now from MessedUpPuzzles.com and use coupon code COLORS for 10% off your first order. Again, that is MessedUpPuzzles.com and use coupon code COLORS. This week's episode is sponsored by RLJE Films. The Shutter original documentary Horror Noir is now available to own on DVD and Blu-ray. Horror Noir takes viewers through a thrilling 120-year history of film, revealing the untold story of black Americans in the horror genre using new and archival interviews from scholars and creators. Order your copy of Horror Noir on Amazon.com today and discover the rich history of black horror. Tonight's episode is also brought to you by Severn Films. Severn Films presents the Euro Crypt of Christopher Lee, eight Blu-ray box set featuring new scans of 60s classics, Castle of the Living Dead, Crypt of the Vampire, Sherlock Holmes, and the Deadly Necklace, Torture Chamber of Dr. Sadism, The Long Lost Challenge of the Devil, and the never-aired anthology series Theater Macabre, hosted by Lee plus new 88-page book by Jonathan Rigby. Pre-order that now at www.severin-films.com. Follow Severin Films on social media for details of their forthcoming releases, including the Dungeon of Andy Milligan box set, UHD debuts of Alex D. La Iglesia's Day of the Beast and Perdita Durango, I'm on that disc, Jodorowsky's Santa Sangri, new special editions of Grizzly, Day of the Animals, Nosferatu in Venice, and much, much more from Severin Films. For almost 20 years, Diabolic DVD has been the source for horror, cult, and weird cinema to customers around the world. Diabolic offers a one-stop shopping experience for all your favorite labels, including Cauldron Films, Arrow, Synapse, Severin, Mondo Macabre, and many, many more from all corners of the globe. Whether you're looking for a definitive version of Suspiria or trying to upgrade your crusty DVD of Cannibal Holocaust. Oh, that crusty DVD. Uh, that you've been craving. Sorry, I'm throwing myself off. Uh, Diabolic is the owner-operated small business choice you have been craving. Shop online at DiabolicDVD.com. That's D-I-A-B-O-L-I-K-DVD.com. And visit our sister company, Cauldron Slash Films.com. In 1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been over 40 years and Fangoria is better than ever, each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horrors past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. Head to Fangoria.com to learn more and to subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code COLORS to save 25% off your yearly subscription. Again, that promo code is COLORS. Hello 
and welcome to Colors of the Dark on the Fangoria Podcast Network. I am your co-host, Rebecca McKendry, and with me is Elric Kane wearing a snazzy shirt tonight. I am wearing uh, Two Paddocks, which is Sam Neill's company. It is not a sponsor of our show in any way, uh, but they are a wine label down in New-, in New Zealand, in the South Island of New Zealand. And it was my Christmas present from my mom, but it's actually very cool. It's like a like half-naked woman. It- it actually looks like um, like there's a Mike Mignola art piece yeah, that kind of yeah. has that same style to it. Um, so that's what I thought you were wearing when I first saw it. So that's that's actually really cool. So Sam Neil showing his good taste. I like it. Um, I have a feeling he's going to make an appearance on the show tonight somewhere. He oh uh, Santa stolen us. Yes, you're probably correct. Um, I can't wait to say that every time one of these titles comes up. But um, every time <laughs> I've been doing that actually since I was about 14 years old. So just so you know, if my friends were listening now, they'd go, "Yeah, I remember him doing that." I have to say, it, the the soundtrack was much different for the visitor. Um, oh. I. I love that soundtrack. Oh, I've li- I, I actually I have that. I listen to that one all the time. But yes, we'll get we'll get there. Uh, all you need to know is there will be some um, uh, apocalyptic devil. Uh, Very apocalyptic. Uh, but up top, we did. I want to mention a couple quick for people who don't get enough of their fix of us. Uh, I was on the uh, Screen Drafts Canon episode where we broke down the couple hundred Canon titles to just seven. Yeah, um, I, I listened to that, and I need to ask you about the severe lack of Apple in that episode, Elric. You mustn't. Uh, you must have listened on fast forward because I actually made many jokes about it, oh, oh, um, oh. and a lot of practical jokes using an off-screen Apple as sound effects. Uh, so just how, know how how is it not at there? the end I of mean- that movie? A guy who I assume is God comes down in a white limo of some sort that parks in the sky. He takes everyone up with them and they go up into the sky. There isn't even a dance number or a song to end a musical. And my you brain was like, need it when you have speed and BIM, BIM, Elric. Bim. I guess, I guess so. But there, there wasn't, no, we'll, we'll talk, we'll find the right podcast to go deep on the Apple. Cause actually Apple does kind of classify as horror for sure. It's so definitely weird. I had always made this claim on shockwaves and you guys yeah. were like, no, no. But I kept saying like, for some reason, horror is really happy to embrace Phantom and Paradise, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, about as horror as the Apple is because the R- Apple is kind of the the Adam and Eve, you know, sin yeah. mythos, the original sin yeah, yeah. mythos, with a lot of Faustian kind of overtones to it as well. And Phantom okay, get Paradise. ready. Brace yourself, Becca. Brace oh, yourself. God. This might oh, be God. the reason why people don't. Menahem um, Golan is not Brian De Palma when it comes to directing. Thanks. That might be why we don't, we accept Phantom of the Paradise because it's an amazing movie by an amazing director. <laughs> Apple has its fucking moments. Okay. It definitely had moments and there were <laughs> and, and it was it was a movie I wish and I will. I won't just wish, but I I look forward to the day. I mean, you get to host a screening of it in public so I can feel yes the full weight of what an audience would do with that movie because it is pretty wild. And it, it does deserve to be talked about here because it is definitely uh, touches on some pretty, there's one dance scene. I can't remember what it was, but it was just See. outrageous. And the sex one is just crazy. I want right? them to come and it's everyone wearing negligees <laughs> and they're like gyrating on beds. And I was like, okay, this, this makes Speed sense. Speed is the motorcycle one. Okay, and that's yeah. the one that the musical is kind of most famous for that and the orgy one. But there are some really good songs. Like the opening of it is really good. Wait, you, well. you're not going to let me talk. We're not going to talk Apple for 12 minutes on our podcast. You're not going to trick me into this. <laughs> this was like, this is what I avoided on the other podcast. I will also say, you know what a huge fan I am of um, Westgate Gallery posters and yes. art. Um, you were actually the one who first kind of alerted me to them because a couple of years ago for, I guess it was like a Christmas or a birthday 
birthday present. Yeah. Elric gave me this beautiful, like 63-inch uh, French Ms. 45 original one sheet. The idea and, is that's going to be your power poster at some point on a Hollywood desk. Behind desk. you will be the most oh sexual, God. violent poster right behind you. I love it. And so, yeah, he gave me it with that kind of, you know, this is going to be your power poster and you're going to put it up behind you in your office. Um, and I haven't had an office big enough yeah. for it yet, but I'm getting one there. Day. I'm it's going to be one day. One yeah. day, one day. Um, USC will move me out of the group closet and uh, I will have a bigger space um, or some Hollywood power office. It's coming. But um, so after that, um, I was immediately kind of alerted to the site and spend many hours a week just kind of scrolling through, looking all the amazing Gallo and cult and slasher posters they have. Um, so this week I ordered myself a couple. I ordered myself um, Super Fuzz and Mr. Mike's Mondo video and um, just a mix of stuff. But the one that I looked at for a really long time was they had an Apple poster. Oh, yeah, it was gorgeous. They're probably I still giving may it go away. back and get it. Still, may uh, go yeah, back and get no, it. and and for people like my, a, I'm a, I've been a long term poster collector, but it's more important than that. I think like if you like our deep cut stuff, it's a great way. Sites like that are a great way to actually find new titles. Forget the posters. It's like you can also be scrolling and see imagery that gets you excited about something you've never heard of, and there's great subcategories. So for me, it's well, always I mean, been a fun way to just look at movies. It made me watch parts of Water Power. Um, okay. so, which, yeah, so that, that, um, because it was, you know, like five different versions and all of this critical acclaim about it on the site. And then I was like, what is this? And then I started. Oh, when the Severin, no, when these, uh, when the vinegar syndrome guys came on way, way long ago on shockwaves, uh, one of them was talking about that being the movie. And I, I remember going, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I didn't make it very far, but it, it's, it's a movie. <laughs> uh, uh, besides the screen drafts appearance, even more importantly, uh, something that has never happened in the many years of podcasting is uh, streams were crossed. Venkman would not be happy with us, but it happened anyway. Uh, Rebecca McKendry, the doctor almost of insectology, uh, came not to even close, <laughs> but that's fine. This is a podcast. Six years of schooling off on. Remember, that it's one. a disposable medium. No one will ever <laughs> just push it. It's, it's, they listen, then they throw it away. Uh, she, yes, yes, she has a doctor of insects. Uh, no. no. <laughs> yes, you can take that to the cleaners. Uh, <laughs> I didn't make it through the second semester. <laughs> but it was a hell of a first semester, and that basically is the P in her HD, and that uh, she came to join us to talk uh, animal attack movies uh, yes. on pure cinema, pure cinema but it's a little we call them samplers but we actually pick multiple different categories so as we do like a, a you know a, a pet type animal text movie mm -hmm. versus a nature wild animal versus uh i can't remember what some of the others were but it was fun I, well actually it let me flex my like um kind of you know ichthyology muscle as well which i really enjoyed where i got to talk um about one of my favorite films orca um, which don't tell anyone just, what I, that's one there's like oh, okay, 50 okay. films we mentioned Actually, people have there. already been writing that somebody was comparing orca to death wish online and i thought that was very it is it literally is yeah. it is the same type of vengeance movie i mean it yeah. literally it's a big it, revenge film yeah it honestly when you look at like the 1970s exploitation films it feels far more like a vengeance film than it does like an animal attacks movie. Because that whale is not attacking everybody. He's only attacking one person, and it's not until the final moments. It functions more like a Death Wish film. So does Jules 4, though. Yeah, that's... Well, no, because there are other things that get in his way. Like, he attacks okay. some kids and stuff, and, you know, he's just aiming for... Oh, so it's the Death you know. Wish 3. Yeah. 
So, you know. Jaws 4 is the Death Wish 3 of Death Wish movies. Okay. There's a bigger yeah. blast radius in Jaws yeah. 4. <laughs> okay, that's fair. And Junkadoo, um, <laughs> which is amazing. Um, so so that, those two, if you're looking for like a few more hours of what we're doing here. Um, but then we also have a screening coming up. We do. So end of the month, Friday, I think it's the 26th. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I forget that February is always the freak month. So it's the 26th of February on Friday. We are screening Day of the Beast through USC. This one's really exciting because this one is really hard to see at this point. There is an absolutely beautiful Blu-ray coming out from Severin um, that I know they will do the film full justice with. But I think we're like three or four weeks before it. So that's super generous of them to allow us to show like the really nice transfer of this prior to the so hopefully it'll convert some people to want to still buy it yes um, no you definitely still need to buy this and perdita durango because they're both bonkers completely you know underserved alex deli glicia movies very different um, from very, each other very different well i mean they still have a lot of the same qualities it's kind of like you still see what makes alex alex oh, yeah. in both of these films yeah, I think the differences mean you didn't want to pick an audience up off the ground afterwards. Uh, rather, yeah. we'd rather laugh and have fun with them. Uh, with than, Durango, I yeah. felt like I was going to have to explain and justify it with Day of the Beast. I'm just going to be like, it's fucking oh, yeah. irreverent and it's very anti-Catholicism yeah. and everything's wrong and let's just go. No, um, that's that's going to be pure fun. Yeah, Perdita Durango has the same thing, but with a lot more rapes. So I didn't yeah. necessarily want to show that one publicly. Yeah. But that said, um, it's still Perdita. I, I I have to say I consider it to be the more fascinating of the two films, um, just because that one was supposed to be um, Alex De La Iglesia's big American film, like his first breakout film. And you see it and it is kind of the most extreme, appalling, intense film that he has made. Um, and it, But it's got Rosie Perez in it and James Gandolfini. It is like this- Javier Bardem. Film. I think that was meant to yeah. be his American breakout too. And it, and it probably set him back a few years because it was so savage. Like, you know, I mean, yeah. people think of him as the guy in James, the last Bond, you know, as a villain, so- and Perdita, I always just look at it as it's one of those movies where I'm just shocked it exists. Yeah. And, you know, how did this film get made? Um, and there's just every element of it is in some way sleazy or seedy or just should not be or is just fucking wrong. But then somehow it combines together into this dark comedy, um, which I don't think everyone is going to appreciate quite to the level that I do. Do, but that said, there's really something interesting going on in it. Um, yeah, and it and just, just never really got seen in America. Like it was very yeah. hard to see here. I started in New Zealand before I moved here and was like shocked by it. And then I got here and it was Dance of the Dead or something. Dance of the Devil. It Dance did a Devil. very limited, very small um, DVD release under Dance of the Devil, um, which I, when I remember, I wrote an article about it on, God, it was like FearNet that long ago. And I remember Andrew Cash emailing me afterwards and being like, oh my God, you're like the only other person who has seen this. And that's um, so funny you mentioned him because he's mentioned that movie to me when I first met him too. That's so funny. Both of us were kind of just really, and we've talked about it a lot, that both of us were just like amused by it. Just like there's something about how the hell does this exist and how does it have such a big Hollywood cast, but part, you know, put all of these exploitive just shock moments into one film um and and, and, somehow, and a fun know, connection and, is uh oh sorry go ahead 
Uh, no, I was just going to say in a fun connector, it's the only, because I'm doing all this uh, research on Lynch at the moment, but it's the only one of Lynch's films to have a direct sequel. Uh, it's mm-hmm. considered a direct sequel to Wild at Heart uh, yep. based on the books, besides Twin Peaks, obviously, uh, which is a prequel he did. So Yeah, it uh, led me, this is, it was Perdita Durango that led me to go read a lot of Barry Gifford. Yeah. Um, prior to that, I, like I'd seen Wild at Heart, but I didn't even really associate it with the books. But after this, I was so just enamored with the character of Perdita and wanting to know like where did it come from because she is just so extreme and intense and in this movie like wanting to know like how did this come to be and it led me to go read um all of the Sailor and Luna stories Lula, because yeah. of it yeah. yeah, no, his stuff's interesting. Yeah, he also wrote Lost Highway, which I think is the best thing he's written. Yeah. Um, but uh, we have movies. New yeah, movies. we got some new stuff and some uh, some old stuff. Actually, I've got a lot of new stuff this week. There's yeah, me too. I don't. I don't think we have a lot in common this week in terms of our new stuff. I think we might have I one. one. Why, yeah, why don't so we, we lead have, with that? We've got Tentacles. This is the new um, one of Blumhouse's Into the Dark series that they do on Hulu. And I really wanted to see this one because one, it seemed like it might be aquatic horror at, or at bare minimum kind of Lovecraftian. And two, I really like the writer on this one, Nick Antosca, who's been on a couple of our past shows. Um, and I think he's just the story though, but like, like I know it's a woman writer who wrote the screenplay based off a short story. And then Nick, yes, I'm sorry. I think you're right. Like it was Nick and another person wrote the short story and yeah, then right. somebody wrote the teleplay. Um, but I, I, Nick Antosca is known for like all of the um, channel, channel zero. zero stuff. Yeah. And I, I generally tend to kind of like his surrealistic style. So I really wanted to check this out for that. Just so I can um, do her justice. I'm going to tell you her name uh, just so we don't skip over it. Uh, the writer is Alexandra Peckman. Um, but you're right. The other, the people, uh, it's uh, from an Antosca story, but it, she's Alexandra mm-hmm. Peckman is the screenwriter. Yeah. And the director is Clara Aronovich. Yeah. And so this, um, I have to say a lot of the Into the Dark series, Elric and I have tended to kind of agree that we feel like we can chop 20 minutes out of most of them to make like There's, a really I, tight story. I've only seen one and, I, and I'm not saying oh, it really? because we're friends with her. No, no, I no, that I don't think that Chelsea's is the oh. only one. That is that buys that running time to me. Like I, I think they could really all be fifty as well. Which one? Gigi's Culture Shock is another oh, one yeah, where I was yeah, like, you're... "This one functions as a movie." You're right. You're right. And it's not. I, what I think the bigger issue is like, who cares? Like, why even? Why does it need to be eighty minutes to be a movie when it's going straight to streaming? You know what I mean? It's like if yeah. it's going to go straight to streaming, why can't it be 55, 60 minutes? It can. It to me. We have to change that term because they would be stronger. Even the ones we like would probably be a little stronger at 60. Yeah, there's been a lot of these that Elric and I agreed were like really tight stories. Like I loved The Body, I thought was good. Um, New Year, New You was really good. But there's been a number of them where we were like, it would be an even better story at 60 minutes. I have to say, I kind of agree the same with this one. Yeah. This had... But I I liked this, and so I'm going to get to that in a sec. Um, But I agree, this had a lot, at least 20 minutes of empty space, that if this had been an hour-long episode, I would have been like, oh, shit, that was, like, cohesive and tight. Um, But there is something really, really interesting about this, which is why I I literally text Elric and was like, okay, you have to watch this this week so we can talk about it on the show, because I have a theory. Um, But the whole setup of uh, this particular episode of Into the Dark Tentacles 
is that this woman kind of appears out of nowhere. We see her bearing a sack of money in the opening, like cold open. And then she appears out of nowhere, seducing this photographer who takes pictures of houses, but, you know, dreams of being a, a much better photographer. And she kind of seduces him and says like, yeah, well, my family's gone. I just float around. She tells him that she's running from a stalker, but they immediately begin having this crazy fast, very sexual, um, intense love affair that, that just I did think of- the open house scene was pretty hot. I gotta say, like, it's hard to do hot in movies. Like it's often just sex stuff is usually pretty dumb. I did think that first scene between them, like seducing someone in an open home that is neither of your houses and stuff. I thought that was actually a pretty nice scene. Yeah. That there was a lot of kind of hot scenes in this. And I have to say there's a sex montage that was shockingly graphic for Hulu. Um, yeah, with their body yeah. blurred and moving across in slow motion and like fast motion. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it was it was really like a fascinating um, sex scene, I have to say, but that really drove home kind of how sexual and feral this relationship was. While they are together, some weird things start happening. The guy slowly starts getting sick. He starts hallucinating. He starts getting these like ear bleeds, these piercing noises in his ear. And in the meantime, weird stuff seems to start happening with the girl. Um, But she seems to be in control. You start getting these moments where her voice will change suddenly or suddenly she'll have a different arm. (laughs) And then it goes from there. Um, And I don't want to blow the full ending yet, but I will say my theory, this feels like it was written as a sequel to Possession. It literally felt to me like the the Sam Neill character when he leaves at the end of the story, where is he 20 years later? Still shape-shifting, still huge sexual appetite, and the whole setup of it. That's yeah, no, my there's, theory. There's certain things. I mean, the difference in possession, he's, the, funnily enough, and it'll come up again later, but at the end of possession, he's really uh, the Antichrist at that point. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that it, it can be read a million ways, but that's kind of what possession seems to be saying. And uh, so the end of the world. So, but yeah, no, there's definitely enough here to, to believe that Nick or <laughs> the filmmakers had seen that film and wanted to reference it in some way. So I could see that the, the tentacles themselves. I don't want to give away too much how they work. Uh, that was uh, I wish they'd spent a little more on practical again. You know, sometimes yeah. these things are like, wouldn't kill you to try practical because when you do it uh, especially when it's a big moment and it goes cg it can kind of take away from something it didn't ruin it for me i'm with you i liked it i liked it quite a lot i I think it's kind of it's going for quite a lot of big things and that's a little rare i feel in these hulu um movies i feel like this is one of the first that was trying to you know go for some pretty crazy ideas and on that level it's pretty entertaining in some ways it's cramming in maybe too many with shape-shifting kind of stories and some of the backstories and past boyfriends it's a lot to get through and i got confused by the love triangle of like the alice yeah. and this mm-hmm. that like that's it where it lost me yeah. and then yeah it, it got a little confusing in and, that but i was still with it and sometimes it's hard like and this is always tough like when you're writing something but like i really liked the actress uh what's mm-hmm. her name is it dan dana dory maybe um she was i found very compelling and very likable and so when she the movie after about 30 minutes kind of hard switches to his perspective for the rest of the movie and i found that to be a little less appealing when i was in his shoes uh outside of hers you know obviously it's critical to this kind of story but uh that was just one of those things I and mean, he's good too they're both good uh i just found myself i thought her she had a really good presence uh, yeah, one thing, yeah, 
yeah, she's just like going from open home to open home, kind of living, I guess, in these open homes when people That's, are closing. It seemed to be like people were closing the open homes and yeah. she would like camp out there for a night. But yeah, no, the reviews on this seemed pretty mixed on, on Letterboxd, but I think both of us saw something in it that's like worth people looking at because it's because mm-hmm. I, I would say the director and the writer, they're showing that they are, have something interesting to kind of work to say. And I think I'd like to see what they do next, you know. And I liked that even in the de- the description, even in the log line that they put up, it described it as a psychosexual mm-hmm fantasy and i was like i kind of like that they just owned that Mm -hmm. um that you know that that was kind of the approach that they were pushing for that wasn't just added so oh the first thing Um, of mine that you read definitely had a couple moments in this where i was like oh that reminds me of our thing (laughs) unformed i kept going oh that's that's oh yeah yeah you're right a couple moments had that vibe for sure um you are very true but i'm glad Um, i watched it so I did a couple documentaries and then a new one from Scream Factory. Where do you want to head next? Uh, well, what new? Let's. Uh, which are new, are they new releases? All of them oh, okay. are new. Yeah, whichever got... whichever you want to do. I've got a bunch of new ones. One one okay. of the ones I've got is something you've seen too. So, but a while. Okay. Ago. Well, then let's jump in with that one. Uh, well, because I remember, I don't know how you saw this early. You saw it a few months ago. Uh, one of the festivals, maybe Queen of Black Magic. I saw it at. Which one was that? Oh, that was um, Fantasia. I saw it at the Fantasia Festival, I think. This movie kicks ass. <laughs> this is a really fun, if somebody's looking mm-hmm. for a really, it's not like, it's, so it's written by Joko Anwar, who is becoming one of both of our favorites, like right now, for filmmaking. Yeah. He wrote this one for his friend, who uh, Kimo Stamboel, who is part of the Mo Brothers. Him and mm-hmm. Timo Tejanto had made a bunch of movies, the killers, tons of them together as a duo. So now he's obviously going off on his own. Um, and this one feels a lot like Jocko's other stuff. I mean, it's like basically it's these guys, uh, friends and their partners and their families returning to this orphanage that they were all kind of saved by when they're boys. The owner of the orphanage is dying, so they've come back to look after him. On the way, they maybe think they might hit a deer, one of the families, but uh, it kind of pans down to reveal it was a girl. Um, they all start to meet in this or, uh, isolated orphanage, and then uh, the guys decide to drive back to see what, if they'd hit something else. And then they discover a bus. This is all pretty early, so I'm just going to get up to Yeah, this is hook. all like in the first 15 yeah, minutes. Yeah, it's pretty like, crazy. Right next to where- yeah, right next to where the girl was hit, they find that there's a bus in the in the bushes, and there's about thirty or so, uh, like twelve year olds all rotting, Little children, all dead yeah, and that- rotting. Really creepy. It's a in really great bus. imagery. Yeah, in a bus, mm-hmm. and so they kind of go back to the back to the house, and they like, what do we do? You know, we got to call cop, uh, and no one can use the phones. And then it just starts to really open up into this kind of like Satan's slaves in some ways. Super creepy. Um, there's a backstory of this woman who uh, helped run the orphanage, who eventually had been locked in a room at some point and had bashed her head against the the room to get out until she was dead. So they're worried about that being a ghost there. And there's a really creepy thing with a a young boy watching a videotape of that. There's all the, I don't want to ruin it because the plot actually had some really good twists to it. Um, There's elements of the orphanage where they all remember that there was this one orphan that was kind of weird um, that they picked on um, that, you know, ran away at some point that ran away at some point and they never found out what happened to him, but they were all questioned by the police. So it opens up all of these different storylines. I thought this one like was 
fun. It's intense yeah. and it's really bloody and it's just really over the top. But there was it was interesting and had some really good scares. In oh, it yeah. Too. Towards the end, it has some bonkers, good horror stuff, too. Like because basically, of course, the title is Queen of Black Magic. So somebody is practicing black magic on them. And and it's obviously a queen. So when that person comes in, there are some wild uh, stuff once that character kind of comes at the end. So I, I highly recommend this one on Shudder. If mm-hmm. somebody's looking for that kind of evil dead fast, it keeps moving crazy stuff. Lots of bug insect horror, lots of yep. bugs going oh, God, the mouth. And, yeah. So much, you know how I am with centipedes. Yeah, like, it's that was, it's yeah super creepy. Um, so I'm going to go actually, I'll save the docs um, for last, but I will go to the pond. And this one is coming to, this one's being released by Screen Factory on the 23rd. And this one I had not heard anything about, but I was sent a screening link. And the setup was that it was like ruralistic folk horror about a community next to a pond. And I was immediately like, folk horror, pond, I'm in. And, uh, and it had this really cool cover image of this guy whose head had been like completely encased in sticks hmm. and anything folk horror I'm in yeah, for. Yeah. So this one, the setup of it is that, um, and it is, it is, I'm not even too sure where it is from. I should look that up um, on the next break, but it is definitely not US based. This definitely feels like it's somewhere in Europe. And it is a gentleman um, whose wife has died. It seems to be very kind of post-plague, post-apocalypse. His wife died. A lot of people died in this disease. And so he was a university professor some type of research scientist. After his wife passed away, he ended up hooking up with one of his grad students and moved to this little like shack in this rural part of the world. And um, he keeps an office in this trailer park next to a pond. And it's all very rural, no one else around, just like a small enclave of like five different families who all live in these little trailers next to this pond. Wherever it is, it is very cold. It's in Belgrade, Serbia. Thank you, Belgrade. I was like, it really feels Middle Eastern. I had to find the production company to find. So Belgrade, Serbia. Thank you. That that definitely makes sense. Um, So and that also makes sense with uh, the movie I was going to compare it to. Okay. Um, But it it definitely. um, So he's living in this like rural trailer park area by a lake, doing research, and you don't realize like what he is doing research on, but throughout the movie. Everyone in this little trailer park, and I use that term not quite in the sense that we know it, Um, like don't picture like trailer park boys. It's much more of like these little kind of like little bungalow trailers around this lake, but everything feels very rural and very kind of set back. Like they don't necessarily have um, a lot of amenities and things like that because it is this post-apocalyptic world. And he is doing all of this research and slowly we kind of get introduced to all the people around the trailer park and we realize that they're all going crazy in some capacity. Like one of the guys becomes really rage filled and is like just attacking trees and punching them and hitting them. Um, They pull this weird, they start pulling weird stuff out of the pond, like some deformed things. And what he starts realizing in his research is he starts finding all of these circles And they all seem like he'll research like the death rate for the disease or um, number of murders within the last six months and things like that. And for every single one, he's finding these circular patterns with him at the center, the trailer park and specifically him at the very center of all of this kind of like mass destruction that's happening. 
And he becomes convinced that there is something going on that he is at the center of, whether the trailer park is becoming hell or he's causing it or something like that, or this madness that is starting there is spreading outward. And the university thinks he's crazy. And then it goes from there. Hmm. This one, uh, this is one, it was very slow burn. This, I would struggle even calling a horror movie because it was so slow burn. I would say it's more of kind of like, a weird post-apocalyptic fantasy drama hmm. where there's a couple of horror notes. Um, there is a very horror version of this, but it was just not kind of as horror laden as a lot of other folk horrors are. But there was definitely something interesting about this. Like I, I really enjoyed it. Um, just don't go in expecting like a, a scare a minute or anything like that. It's going to move really slow. Actually, the film that I compared it to is Sauna. Oh. Um, which I don't know if you remember like that fun. film. Yeah, it's it's. I think I saw it because of you ten years ago. Yeah, I really liked this one, and I can't. I know. I want to say it was like Serbian. Um, uh, Sauna no. was Finnish. Finnish, thank you. Yes, no, memory, it was yeah. it was definitely further up. Um, but that one, it's got the kind of the same bleakness. It's got the similar look to it, where everything's kind of very blue and gray and washed out, and um, and it's got the same kind of cold feel to it. And just like sauna, the pacing is there, where it kind of gives you this horror setup, and then doesn't necessarily choose to do anything with it until the final moments of the movie. And so it it felt like it kind of, you know, they would be an interesting double feature, but one that you would probably need some caffeine to get you through. Um, well, yeah. I've, got, I've got a good folk car to match it with then. Oh, um, and this so one, that, I, that because people said we needed to oh, repeat. Yes, that's right. That was The Pond, and it is coming from Screen Factory on the 23rd. So, the yeah, I do. Note I get um, from every I, show I do. <laughs> yeah, repeat the titles. I do recommend this one if you are a folk horror fan. There is something really fascinating about it. Yeah, this one, this is one of my favorites of the year so far, and but it won't be for everyone because, of, cause like what the one you just talked about, it's pacing and it's kind of indiness. But uh, this is like a total indie wonder story, and I really wanted you to see this one. Um, whether you like it or not, I think you'll find you'll be utterly fascinated by how it was made and that is sator um which finally came out i have it sitting on my desktop oh man i want to see this uh, yeah movie. so this by a guy called jordan graham and it's just uh the story behind it. it's kind of like you know where where headhunters had that great story this might be more my bag than headhunters is just brilliant for what it is uh or headhunter uh but this is a little bit more my bag in terms of the folk are um it's in the middle of nowhere. I'm not sure what the mountains are that it's set in. It's a desolate forest. You got this guy who lives, you know, alone, you know, bearded hunter type guy uh, who kind of just spends a lot of his time watching the closed circuit video of the deer and the forest because he's looking for something. You can tell he's had some sort of deep loss. And then his buddy who lives at a, you know, not too far away house um, also remotely. And they kind of, you know, you can tell there's history there. They might be cousins. I can't, couldn't really tell, but it's largely about this kind of broken family where the mother's been lost to some illness and they, and their grandmother who they go to visit, who has um, also, is it Alzheimer's? I think it's Alzheimer's. And it turns out when you uh, find out about the movie, she actually has Alzheimer's in real life and is the real grandmother of the director. And it gets even weirder from there. So they are uh, looking out for a entity called Sator who the mother started to believe in was a supernatural entity who wanted to claim them from the forest and uh, she basically ended up through flashbacks. You start to learn that she started wor- trying to worship it and that the grandmother, every time they go to the grandmother, it's almost like it's lo-fi digital, like feels like a documentary, the, the scenes with the grandma, because maybe they really were shooting it with the real grandmother. Turns out the grandmother in real life 
uh, was doing automatic writing about a character called Sador who was visiting her. So that part's real. Like she actually, so he was taking this, this part of it from a real thing that she was experiencing and he was putting it into the focus of what is a beautifully shot narrative. Like he, he actually, wow. uh, the other parts of the film aren't shot like that. It's beautifully shot in the forest. Um, there's just, there's almost antichrist type cinematography at times um, from Von Tristram. Anyway, uh, the guy is slowly probably being taken over. You're not really sure what the main character and, and we're kind of seeing through his, his friend's uh, perspective of what's happening to this guy over time as he's getting pulled deeper into the mystery. There's scenes of like the evil dead where they listen to the, the recordings with the, the voice and Necromon- and there's scenes in that that are really creepy, but I had just seen this not too long after seeing Ben Wheatley's new one and Ben Wheatley's new one. It feels God, like, I want to see that one. well, I actually think this one's better to be honest, but they feel like they're set in the exact same world. Like literally Seder is like the one has more payoff than Wheatley's, but Wheatley has, is an amazing kind of build up, and, you know, but they, they have a, there's a symmetry to these two movies, but here's where it gets fun. So I'm not going to tell you too much more about the story. It's only like 85 minutes, even though it's a slow burn. It's a really, you know, you know, it's well-made, but here's the crazy thing. I filmed for about 120 days. Um, and guess who made it? Just the director just him everything every credit sound design cinematography direction like he has a credit at the end of this movie which is about 30 different things so this is a handmade piece of uh, cinema and on that level it's mind-blowing and then uh, there's some a couple really good articles that hit once it went up about how he did it and how it basically was seven years of his life seven years of post-production um and and the and how he's really merging true family things that were happening with a horror film so it's it's utterly fascinating it's gonna be for me it has to be one of the films of the year just in terms of like all of that like it makes it so interesting um so i really want to put this on you know dick our friend dick was the one who i'd, I'd heard the title and wanted to see it for a few months but i didn't actually know anything about it i just had heard of, the, of a film called i think uh, yellow veil put this out and yeah christian um christian my uh christian Ormaguito had recommended this to me a couple of times and yeah i absolutely need to see this it's yeah so i think like i said even if you don't like it like because some people will be too slow for or whatever but it has some really cool payoff images um but even if even if that's the case i think it's a must see in the horror indie space because i just think you know stories like this are always inspiring and remark it kind of reminds me not on the tone at all but just in the handmade uh vision of um eyes of my mother by um uh nick um you know who's who's gone Pesh. yeah Pesh. Nick like and i don't mean that it looks like that as a film but just the feeling that you get mm-hmm. of somebody who made a film in isolation and we'll, could make a little bit of a splash. So yeah, Seder uh, is excellent. Uh, definitely check it out. And I'd love to get Jordan Graham if he if somebody hears from him on this to discuss it. You know, because it's, yes, it's like an interesting. Send story. him our way. I would yeah. love to talk to him about how he did this by himself. I want to talk to him about his grandma too. Yeah, that stuff is interesting. Unfortunately, she passed after not too long. She didn't get to see it, but she. But it's it's it doesn't feel exploitive. It feels like he wants to include her in something that matters to him making a movie. It didn't feel like he's exploiting her illness by any means. That's kind of beautiful. Yeah, I think so. You know, it's, I know as a parent, we would want that, you know, we'd want to be part of things if your kid, no matter what your kid was making, you know, so, um, so yes, that's Sator. Um, well, I'm going to move on to something. Um, so these are both documentaries because I've been on a documentary binge. I watched a couple that weren't even, you know, horror this week just because I've been doing a bunch of docs. Um, but I checked out the Cecil hotel doc on Mm. Netflix. So, Cecil Hotel. I have a fun history with this one. So the Cecil Hotel is this hotel in downtown Los Angeles that has this vast and colorful and awful history. And it's kind of become notorious in that for being haunted, 
for being this place where there are all these deaths. Um, in the documentary, they talk about how on average there was um, the woman who was there said that, you know, in her time there, she'd been there like five years. There was like 80 deaths that occurred there in that time. Wow. And the Cecil Hotel is right next to the area of Los Angeles known as Skid Row. And Skid Row is where, where um, I work. <laughs> it's pretty close to where I work. <laughs> it is actually really close to there. Um, Skid Row is, is it's always been kind of um, the poverty row of Los Angeles. It's just where the homeless uh, kind of congregate. And it is because it is where there are the most missions, there are the most shelters, there's the most outreach centers. So honestly, it's kind of like if you are seeking help, it's where you have to go. But also because of that, it does have a high crime. There's a lot of drugs going on. Um, and it, it just, you know, it's an interesting area to kind of research for Los Angeles just because, uh, you know, if anything, over time, Los Angeles has been really disparaging to the area instead of trying to clean it up, just kind of like, can we shove all of our problem, you know, the, the problems in one place? And it's really um bad the way that Los Angeles has treated that area and kind of the lack of concern of its residents. And so with that, the Cecil Hotel is next door. And so the history of the Cecil is is heavily intertwined with kind of the history of Skid Row. But because of that, it's got a very, I'll say colorful past. Um, some of the examples of the things, the real life things that have happened at the Cecil Hotel. It was considered to be one of the last places where the Black Dahlia was seen. She was seen there days before her death having a drink at the bar, and that was kind of one of the last places she was seen. The Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez, lived at the Cecil Hotel and apparently would actually go kill people in Los Angeles, strip down outside, and then walk through the lobby naked and covered in blood, and no one stopped him and just like let him go up to his room. Well, the documentary on Netflix, um, the way that I actually first approached, uh, found out about the Cecil, we were in downtown Los Angeles for a Fangoria convention back, this would have been like maybe 2005, 2006. And we had the hotel that the actual convention was near that was really expensive. And so a lot of the people who were coming in were looking for cheaper options in downtown Los Angeles. And a bunch of my friends who had come in town for it ended up staying at this place called Stay on Main, which was the Cecil Hotel. In the 2000s, they renamed it because the Cecil had such a notorious background. They renamed it Stay on Main to try to make it sound hipper and trendier, and they cleaned it up a little bit, but it was still the Cecil. Um, and you were still staying in the rooms, and apparently it was still pretty run down. And so a lot of the people that were staying there then suddenly realized that they were staying at the Cecil. And I remember discussing it at the convention and being like, oh, shit, you're at the Ghost Hotel. And so fast forward um, a number of decades. And I actually remember this case happening while I was working on Blumhouse.com because I remember it coming up on some of my like weird supernatural sites that we used to like. It was viral. At. It was definitely a viral story. Yeah, it went viral. Um, Elise Lamb, who was uh, traveling, a Canadian student traveling to Los Angeles, just kind of touring up and down the West Coast, had this video recorded of her, her acting really weird at the Cecil, like talking to somebody who didn't exist in the lobby. She was clearly running from something. And then she completely disappears. And then several weeks later, all of the residents of the Cecil start complaining of the water tasting bad and they find yeah. her in the water tower. Yeah. And people had been drinking that water for weeks. So that is the focus of the documentary, um, which was a really long lead into it, but it's got such a rich history. So this documentary... It is, I want to say a six-part series. 
it starts out really covering kind of the notorious background of the hotel and going into the intertwined part of Skid Row, talking about, you know, the social problems that exist on Skid Row, Los Angeles really kind of turning a back on the area, um, Los Angeles turning its back on the Cecil for a long time and just kind of letting it be like Wild West. Um, but then it, it definitely gets into like the Richard Ramirez stuff and all of just the wild tales of the Cecil, even how American Horror Story based the hotel season off of the Cecil. I figured that um, would be it, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so that's intertwined there about how it was notorious enough to kind of influence that. But then once it gets into the Elise Lamb stuff, it really does shift gears and focuses a lot more on mental illness. Mm-hmm. And the lack of care that we give it in society. And so I found this to actually be really compelling. And I liked where it went. And it definitely used that kind of notorious, supernatural, oh my God, urban legend stories behind the Cecil to kind of hook you in. But then it really did go into a different direction of people just turning a blind eye to mental illness, Mm. to homeless to the problems that exist on Skid Row, to the crime, just assuming that if, you know, um, it, it's, you know, it's happening over there, so we don't have to pay attention to it. And so it really did go someplace interesting that I was not expecting. And so I found this to be a really compelling look. I saw a lot of complaints online for where it went, how it did take the shift going from the supernatural urban legend. There's a lot, also a huge part of this is conspiracy theories and internet sleuths and showing the dangers behind it. Because apparently after the Elise Lamb video came out, there were all of these internet sleuths, which I'm going to put in quotes, who were trying to use that to figure out what could have happened and were actually like attacking people that they thought were staying at the hotel at that time period that could be potentially involved in Mm. her disappearance to the point where, and these people weren't involved in any capacity, but to the point where they were actually destroying their lives and destroying their online presence. Without telling me, do they solve why she was talking to herself in the... Basically, okay, yeah. Okay. So, okay. yeah. Yeah. So, I- it definitely it definitely gives you a very solid, very clear understanding, a lot of which was not released at the time period. Um and suddenly the video makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But it definitely it takes its time getting there. And yeah, it's one of the things yeah. about Netflix, they're kind of milking a lot of things that could be two hours into six parts. And that's my one of my reticent things about sometimes starting these things is because I have so many movies I'm always trying to get through that it's like, oh, six hours? Does it need all six? You know? I got to say, every part of this was interesting because mm. there was definitely an episode on kind of what this hotel was when they built it in the 20s and how it started as like this splendorous hotel for the common man. Um, And then where it became as Skid Row developed out into the depression years and where it still is, um, you know, intertwined with Skid Row today. And it goes a lot into Skid Row's past. So every single moment of this, I found to be really captivating. And then again, I saw a lot of guff for it online that it did kind of stop with the supernatural storyline and instead spin into mental illness. But the way I saw it, it's real life. (laughs) It did. It used the supernatural to hook me in going, Oh my God, I saw that video when it was a viral meme and I I have to know what happens. And then it used it to really kind of make a strong social platform. And so I found it to be kind of smart in that capacity. Um, Is the hotel still in existence? Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. It's It's still there. Okay. No, no, it's still there. They have 700 rooms. Um, There's a lot about Los Angeles law in there as well. That talks Mm. about, People live there. 
Um, because in right, Los like Angeles, Chelsea law, used to be, yeah. Yeah, like you can't kick people out. If yeah. they stay there continuously, they become residents and then it becomes a squatter's rights thing where you can't kick them out. So there are many, many people who still live there to this day. Um, and apparently it still functions as as a hotel as well. So. Yeah, I got yeah. I want to go see. Yeah, I, I've, I tried to visit most of the Dahlia's last places. There's a few, a couple of the Biltmore's another hotel. They, they claimed she went in for a last drink. It's always just fascinating, these kind of old... Mm-hmm. Uh, stories from old Hollywood, old Hollywood. stories. Yeah, this, has, this has a lot of old Hollywood I'm gonna stories. Start, I'll start it at least and see if it grabs me. Um, I'll, I'll do a couple of just quickies because one I've kind of already mentioned, but uh, uh, Bria Grant, uh, you know, is made her directorial debut in terms of films um, with 12 hour shift. And I really like this movie. It's really fun. Like it's a dark black comedy um one of the most exciting parts is angela bettis who we all love from may and you know uh many other roles but you know those that's kind of her main one she's just really good in this this is her you know this is a good what i don't know 15 years after may or something and this is all set in 1999 and if i felt it was kind of perfect to come out now because it's about a nurse on a 12-hour shift um and just thinking about how overworked our medical uh frontline responders are these days this i could really feel this character and she's this burnout she's a junkie who steals all sorts of things from uh you know from her job to get high on uh, she is also embarking on a, a scheme with a couple other people that she works with to take uh sell kidneys and sell body parts and um one of these uh black market operations goes very wrong on on the course of this one 12-hour shift and you get some cool cameos like david arquette who's a criminal who's in there mick foley the wrestler just a bunch of people uh, chloe farnworth who i wasn't aware of as her scheming cousin is hilarious and steal like kind of has the big role that kind of steals the movie in a lot of ways but uh, i think if somebody's looking for something a little different this kind of made me feel good after when i was feeling a little bit like about things and it's it's i wouldn't call it slight but it's not it's not like trying to be bigger than it is, but I, I thought it was impressive. And I thought it was just a cool, if you're looking for something that's different from the other kind of horror stuff, I thought 12 hour shift was a lot of fun, to be honest. I thought I had a good time with it. Fantastic. Um, I'll talk about this one real quick because this could turn into like another Cecil where I have to um, <laughs> explain the whole thing. Um, and that is, I watched Rodney Asher's new documentary, a glitch in the matrix. So Rodney Asher is known in horror circles as the guy who did the nightmare. Um, which and was the shining. I feel like and the shining back, yeah, room two three seven. So he definitely has done these kind of horror adjacent documentaries. This one is the least horror adjacent, but that said, I think there's definitely something here that's still going to amuse and interest horror fans in that capacity. Glitch in the Matrix is about a thing called the Mandela effect, which I was aware of, but not kind of to the degree that this documentary goes. And it's the idea that we are either living in an alternate timeline where things are switching back and forth or things are bleeding in from other timelines or even more so that we're living in some type of a simulated reality. And we can see it in mistakes um, that we we have. Like it, it's things like most people know like that the Berenstain Bears is spelled wrong, Febreze is spelled wrong, but it's actually called the Mandela effect because there seems to be this mass community remembrance that Nelson Mandela died in prison in the 1980s. And I remember that as well. I had always thought Nelson Mandela had died in prison and apparently he didn't, that he, he, you know, was still alive and kicking. And um, I but know for that some because reason, he became the prime minister of uh, president yeah. of South Africa <laughs> years later. And apparently there was like this large group of people, myself included, who were like, wait, I thought he died in prison. And I have memory of that as well. Um, you know, not specifics, but 
a memory of it to the point where I was like, wait, I thought he was dead. And um, so that's the idea of the Mandela effect is that there was some type of glitch in our simulation where that happens, but then there's also an alternate timeline existing. And so it really does explore that. Hmm. There is a lot to this documentary. There's a lot of story in this story and a lot of different theories. And it does some really interesting stuff. There's a couple of choices that it made that made me question it. There's one twist near the end where they do a reveal about one of the talking heads that has been talking the entire time that kind of made me discredit some of the stuff they were saying. Um, Not that I necessarily believe in the Mandela effect, but I was buying into it for the course of the documentary. And then they reveal one thing about one particular character that made me go, oh, oh, oh no, you're just crazy. (laughs) Um, So so that kind of threw me for a loop. I'm not sure if that was exactly- Crazy doesn't mean wrong. Crazy does not mean wrong. That is true. That is true. Um, So yeah. But um, there's a lot here and I definitely really enjoyed the ride or not enjoyed. I was fascinated by the ride it took me on. And it's one that I'm still thinking about whether or not I necessarily believe that I am in a simulation. There was a lot of interesting points made by this documentary and things that I'd felt as well, like the idea of, you know, people being replayed in your life. Like the same guy who handed me my bagel is the guy who is, I'm going to see at the gas station in five days and I'm not going to make the connection. Um, you know, like the, the extras in my life are being reused and things That's like that. Like there's a lot of interesting theories in it. Yeah. I trust him. Like he makes like, even if it, even if it doesn't work a hundred percent for you, you're always going to find his films to be unique and interesting. And he has a, he has style to his films. They're not just talking right? heads. I think his nightmare movies were like, what is one of the scariest movies of that year? year it had some really creepy stuff in it so he he knows how to put together really interesting documentaries and i will say this is not a standard documentary like he makes some big swings in this one in choice of how he shoots it and what he presents it as and so there's some interesting stuff it was definitely a very compelling ride whether or not i ultimately agree with it at the end of the day is is completely moot it's an interesting ride well speaking of glitches in the matrix uh nick cage finds himself stranded in a remote town uh, where he is stuck in what is essentially a diseased, uh, rabid Chuck E. Cheese that has long been closed down for 20 years because uh, they became menacing and uh, hurt people. He has to, his, his car is broken down to pay off the bill. He doesn't talk in the entire film, which I can't remember last time I saw that. But he doesn't have a single word of dialogue. He's the lead. Wow. That's actually a really bold choice. It did. I kept waiting for that one line. I hope it doesn't spoil it that he doesn't, but it's kind of interesting. He's the man with no name. Uh, So he's forced to work in this theme park. Uh, Willie's Wonderland is the name of the film. Uh, And he basically fights uh, animatronic, um, like, you know, like giant Chuck E. Cheese type things that are all kind of uh, demonic and crazy. And it goes, it tells you why it's there. Um, There are some really fun sequences in this. I kind of, I think I gave it three star on Letterboxd, but like literally two of those stars are for Nick Cage playing pinball because... You know, he, he's playing pinball to 80s music. What more do you need from your life? But uh, Nick is awesome. He's fully committed. There's some really funny sequences of him having to wear the Willy's Wonderland T-shirt and because he's cleaning this place up uh, before as he fights these things. Um, there's some subplots with like teenagers. That's just totally not good. Um, and it's not the best. It, it feels like a movie that needed another couple million dollars to probably deliver everything it wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it feels kind of like a very indie version of the story that it's doing. But 
if you're looking for some cage rage fun and just him beating on animatronics, you know, those parts, you can't really go wrong. So uh, I would wait another week or something when the price comes down a bit. I, I split it with a friend, uh, for, but at 20 bucks, it's a little, a little high, you know, um, but it is horror and it is interesting. So Cage is, you know, he did this and I talked about the Sion Sono one last week. So he's he's still doing his thing. Um, some crazy movies. I had a, you know, neither of them blew me away, but uh, I am I have told Cage my, I've told my students that some semester I'm going to convince them to let me teach an entire class on Cage. Oh, yeah, I would just do it his acting style. Yeah. Him and Paz de la Huerta are two people that like. I, I can't yeah, tell. She's if not as consistent. Nick, Nick is no. Nick is a great Nick. You can tell because of the roles he's done. That's what's amazing about him. He has done other roles where he's subtle. He's done like things yeah. like um, uh, it's not, not moonlighting. Um, Moonstruck. Moonstruck, which is an incredible great. performance. And I've seen him play real. Yeah. So he, yeah. that's how we know what his range is, just this incredible range. And he had that period. Like National Treasure is very different than leaving Las Vegas and Bad Lieutenant, right? Um, but but you're right. But she, whereas Paz, I don't think I've ever seen Paz do anything below a Normal. 10. Yeah. Um, and I'm pretty sure I saw her screaming walking down the street of New York once and it was fascinating. Like it was like, she was talking to herself on the other side of the road and like in an angry conversation, one-sided. And I remember watching and still totally hot watching. I was like, Oh, that's so hot that she's arguing with herself and really angry. Um, but anyway, (laughs) very Bukowski or something. I don't know. Um, I remember actually talking to somebody once who said that her sex appeal was her edge. Like that, 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 like I could go off at any moment edge. So, um, but I'm fascinated by her acting choices, but Nick Cage even more so. And someday I will, I will teach a class on Nick Cage's wild acting and Udo Kier. That's another one where I'm like, there's something happening there, but apparently he's great in the new movie where he plays serious. Bacara. I've already, those are my top 10 last year. I've already forgotten. Uh, Bacara, I think it is. It's a Brazilian. Bacara, that's and, yeah. and he is, he's the, he's really like, I would have given like a supporting nominee. It's, I mean, it's very, he's still a bad guy, but he's just, it's it played very uh, low key for him. And he's really good. Wow. In it. And he's fun in um, the blazing world too. That was at Sundance. He plays more of a fairy tale type character and he's good in that as well. So he's a, he's a good actor. He's not, he hasn't got like, crazy range but mm-hmm. he is good at what he does you know which is always yeah. good um is that the last of yours because if there is i have a that transition is the last of mine give us ooh, your transition, transition. So, okay let's do it <laughs> um, <laughs> you don't need sound effects uh so why don't you uh, why don't you talk about how where this yeah. interview came from and then i'll talk about because i'm not part of it i will talk about my feelings towards this trilogy I won't talk about the fourth, and then and that way we can throw to uh, the interview portion. Yeah. So this um, back in gosh, it was like April or May. Like we were only like a month or two deep into the pandemic. Like we didn't feel like we were um, like in the world was not fully on fire yet. It was just sucky. Um, at that time, I decided I wanted to talk to Glenn Mazzara just because I'd been following him for a long time on Twitter. I was always really impressed on kind of his candidness with fans. Like Glenn is always one who, if you ask him, you know, why something is, or, or, you know, ask him how to break into Hollywood or anything like that. Like he's always really candid with people on Twitter and it's gotten him a a good following on there. Um, I had seen the Damien TV show, which was kind of critically panned. Like the critics were not huge fans of it. Um, but there was like a growing amount of us on Twitter who were kind of into it. Like I liked it. And so I really wanted to talk to him about what some of his decisions were going in and why they were made. Cause it 
was completely different than any of the films. Like it really does take Damien in a completely different path. And so I booked him on Nightmare University. We recorded an interview, not even so much of an interview as a discussion into Christian theology, the devil versus God, the role of the Antichrist biblically in films, just really kind of diving into what evil is perceived as biblically and then what we've come to perceive it as in a film sense. And then we also talk a lot about Damien, the TV show, and why he did certain things in response to the entire Omen franchise and what it kind of says about the Antichrist. Cool. And so we taped this for Nightmare University. Then Fango went under. The podcast network went under. I had nothing to do with it. I thought about releasing it on our Patreon, but I just kind of shelved it and was like, someday this will come to fruition. Ulrich and I started talking about Antichrist movies a couple of weeks ago, and I was like, God, I got this great interview with Glenn. And so that's what we're going to listen to tonight is um, this really tight 40-minute interview on Christian theology, the devil, and the Antichrist. And and for clarity, because I know because this is our show versus the old show, but like uh, Becca did, you know, was totally going down the road of re-recording this. Uh, and Glenn was game too. And, and I feel like uh, I hate having to re-record thoughts. I think there's mm-hmm. something, there's nothing more painful. If, if we lost the podcast and you asked me to redo it, I don't even think I would. And so, what, so as soon no, as you told me, yeah, as soon as you said you had a good recording, I'm like, no, just use it. That's awesome. And we'll, and, and so I was suddenly off the hook because we weren't going to redo it. So I didn't need to watch any of the Omen films. And so I don't know what happened, but I, what, here's the thing. I, it's one of the franchises I kind of know least because the first Omen, I've only seen it once and it was like 20 something years ago. Um, and I've always preferred other ones. And I've seen parts of three on TV because of Sam Neill, but didn't really watch it, thought it was kind of slow and didn't get it. And I'd never seen two. So here I was on, I think it was Saturday night. And I was like, you know what? Before we do this episode, I'm going to watch Omen again. Uh, watched it, blew me away. Like I thought I, I, it instantly goes into my like, top 10 forever for horror. It's such a good movie. And, you know, uh, Richard Donner's mates, you know, Goonies and Superman. He's a great director. It's a really well-made movie uh, with big stars. It's actually scary, um, especially because of the kind of Final Destination-esque, you know, sequences that undo people. But that, that there, it really is actually genuinely chilling. Like I felt hair stand up where in the opening kind of sequence where the babysitter, you know, at a giant, birthday party for all these kids just goes up onto a balcony and says it's all for you damien i did it all for you damien. it's truly that that does is deserving as being one of the scariest moments because it's just unsettling and disturbing um so anyway i was totally captivated by it and it made me go and david warner especially as the photographer and so i was like okay i need to watch the second one because it can't be as good as this and i watched the second one and love the second one i love it's the second awesome. one so i i talk about that in the interview how there's parts of me that are like i like parts of the second one more than the yeah. first because in and we'll talk about this in the interview yeah. but i'll say it very casually here the second one is all about realization hmm. like he does not realize what he is and it's him coming to terms with it oh and yeah the kid stuff is interesting so yeah you're right like it's compelling. but what i uh, you know so interestingly enough so gregory peck is the star of the first one major star obviously um in the second one william holden from uh, wild hmm. bunch is the star he was meant to be the star of the first he was actually first approach which i thought was interesting um he's really good in this he, he's like what i guess his cousin or something you know he's, he's the brother of gregory peck from the first one so they obviously inherit the son uh who is now turning into a 16 year old or something like that yeah. 15 16 year old boy in a military academy and i like the military stuff but there's something about this one that um is quite bonkers i i think the first is a better movie don't get me wrong like it's a classic but this one has effects and kills that are off the charts and does what sequels have to do it punches it up 
it makes it more playful. Uh, it has some great cast. Lance Henriksen uh, is the head of the military. He will come up again uh, yeah. as we look at devil movies, um, uh, Antichrist movie. But this is a really fun movie. Uh, so I highly recommend people checking out. And then uh, literally, it's, it's all on the same night. And then I'm like, I'm totally hooked by the story now. I need to finish the story. So I was really the, it wasn't the having to do it. It was like, I just liked the story of the, the, the rise to power of this character. And then the part three isn't a bad movie. It's just not as good as the other two by any mm-hmm. means. It's a little slow. It doesn't, it ha- doesn't have a very good ending. The ending's kind of cheesy, um, you know, kind of almost too Christian or something, but, but, you know, Sam's good. Um, but what's bonkers. And I hadn't thought about it's the same year as possession. He is playing this oh, character wow. in 81, the same year possession comes out where he's playing basically the same character by the end of that, that film and antichrist. Of, and, and he's a lot more mature in the other film. So it's fascinating how, cause he still seems young and um, a little shell like in this, but you know, it's about the rise and this one's a bit more political and it's a bit more um, because of, you know, his rise to power is going to be through politics that he's going to end the world. But what's, what's cool about this as a three, you know, and I'm not part of this interview, so I'm not trying to uh, tilt this and I don't, I'm not going to go anywhere near as deep as you guys are going to go. But I thought it was, fascinating because it's 76 78 81 so these are all made pretty quickly um yeah. and it really feels like a single story i didn't bother to go to four because it's not about damien anymore so i was like i don't want to see that mm-hmm. but i think this is a great trilogy like it's as a, as a three part film i thought it was a great story and really each one was well made uh to an extent and great i think the biggest lack in three is that the other two have such good casts like oh actors gosh, yeah. who you recognize them all part three really very few people and it's you know it just doesn't have the same kind of star power so I encourage you to watch the Damien TV show, which they canceled after the first season. Um, and and again, it slowly started growing this kind of online cult behind it. Um, but there was something that I found really compelling about it, which was what first prompted me to reach out to Glenn in the first place. So we're okay. going to talk a lot about that. We also delve a lot into kind of, um, and somebody asked us about this on Twitter today, so it was kind of kismet, the idea of these movies, the Omen movies, kind of being this crossover of animal attack movies with Antichrist. And then after this, the animals become crucial. If we all kind of look back at Exorcist of where a lot of these movies are spinning out of, it does not have an animal component. But by the time we get to the Omen, we have the crows, we have the Rottweiler, and then those animals become kind of a staple in Antichrist movies to come. So we get, get into that. As it's well. one of the things I like about them. I found I found the yeah. dogs really unsettling. I found the dog in the first one very unsettling. Just yeah. something about it um, and the use of it. The whole Yeah, we talk about the bestiality of it as well and what represents the beast biblically. Like this gets way into theology, which I love. Well, and and um, the character is born from... Uh, a, a hyena. A hyena, hyena. So, hyena, so which is yeah. which is fascinating. Um, but anyway, I, I just recommend if you have never done it, that watching these as a three parter was good fun. Um, make sure after the interview you uh, stick around, so you'll you'll get to hear this great in depth interview because we are not done quite yet with our uh, Antichrist. We are going to hit yeah. you from deep cuts and a and a film fight and all movies. The fight. Antichrist film fight. fight coming up just after the interview. So stick around for that as well. have Glenn Mazera joining us today. He is the EP on The Shield, Life. He was the showrunner and EP on The Walking Dead for seasons two and three, and most recently on um, the Damien series on A&E. Welcome, Glenn. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I, I am so excited to chat with you because you have legit made some of my favorite TV projects that have happened within the past um, decade or so. Um, but specifically, I wanted to dive into Damien um, because 
there is so much that has to be taken into consideration when you take a project from something that previously exists, like an IP that's been around for a long time and decide to take it into a different format. So I'd love to start by asking, how did you come upon Damien and and what um, were your kind of early decisions of how to approach the franchise? Well, um, with Damien was a Fox property. I had a deal with Fox at the time and they were interested in, you know, going through their library and finding properties and, and, and maybe creating a series out of it. Sort of like how, you know, Bates motel was done. Right. Um, so they approached me and I'm a fan of the omen. I'm a horror fan. And so I was like, okay, let me think about how to do this. And I realized that, you know, there were certain things, I mean, we could talk about the franchise. There were certain things about, the story of Damien, the way it's told is, you know, the, the trap is it just becomes about the, the, the murders, you know, it just becomes mm-hmm. about the sort of final destination of it all, all these, these mousetrap type murders. And you kind of have to, that could get old, that could get boring pretty quickly. So I wanted to tell a story. So I started thinking about, I was raised Catholic and I started thinking about how, you know, Christ was really sort of dormant for the first three decades of his life. And then when Mm -hmm. he was 30, he was baptized and then he built a church, um, you know, with a, or he started to build a church within three years, he was killed. And then, and then if you think about it, this was a church that was in disarray and his followers were being hunted, hunted and they were hiding. And then that took over, you know, the Roman empire within 300 years. So that's a pretty interesting story that, that, you know, you had this seed. So I thought, well, can I do an anti version of that, an antichrist version where Damien has, maybe he's been traumatized by the, his early childhood. He's forgotten who he is. We have some type of baptismal event and within three years, he builds a church and I wanted to actually, you know, the show unfortunately only went one season. And we could talk about season one because I was pretty arced out mm-hmm. where he sort of, you know, um, um, fulfills the prophecy, um, promise. He, he, he takes on the mantle and decides to be the Antichrist, but he goes through season one, you know, he goes through a process to get there. He doesn't just automatically accept it. Yes. So, so I wanted um, over the course of the, the um, series to see him build this evil church, I had different pillars, I had different characters, I had storylines worked out. I was actually going to have him um, destroy the world. I was going to bring around the, uh, bring about the <laughs> apocalypse. I was going to have a war. I, I had a way to re- reveal a second coming of a Christ. I can talk about that, but I really wanted to do the building of an evil church that brings about the apocalypse through a guy we're rooting for. Mm-hmm. So that that's what the plan was. And, and um, we could talk about maybe, you know, some of the reactions to it or whatever, but that, that was, that was my initial plan was really to look at Christ and, and flip it on its head. 
Which is kind of the most um, common belief of the Antichrist. When I was researching kind of like what the Antichrist is, it looked like kind of our general understanding of it came out of kind of a medieval context of that he is the polar opposite of Christ. And so everything that like Jesus went through of like the self-realization when he was an adult that he was the son of God and then kind of, you know, being able to perform miracles in the exact path is what the Antichrist will follow. Um, so that's a really fascinating way to take it because it is this kind of medieval classical belief. But you touched on something there that I have been fascinated by as I've been revisiting the Omen franchise, the entire thing, um, which is that Damien is both our protagonist and our villain, that he is evil And we are well aware of this, but at the same time, we're following him, kind of almost rooting for him. Um, And I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about how you kind of tried to embody that within your Damien. Well, I wanted my Damien to start off as an atheist, you know, Mm -hmm. and here's a guy who, you know, one, one of the things that if you look at the movies, people buy into, oh, well, weird things are happening. This guy must be the Antichrist. They get to it pretty quickly, except in the first one. I think there's a good, good sense of grounding it. And, you know, Gregory Peck goes through a good process, but everybody else gets it to it pretty quickly, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe because the audience already knows it. I wanted, I wanted, um, and, and, and Damien in, in the second and third movie, you know, ends up pretty arch pretty quickly. Yeah. So I wanted to, you know, have an arc because if you just have a character who's arch at the beginning, there's no character development. And then it, you just, you know, get to more and more sadistic scenes and, and it just escalates and, and it could become pretty bleak pretty fast. So I wanted the audience to go along on, on that ride. So I um, created a guy who was an atheist and basically he, he has a problem with God and he thinks if there is a God, first of all, there's no God, there's no devil. And, and it's ridiculous to think that they're really at war and I'm on the stage, I'm caught in the middle of it. That, that's just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But in the second episode, he says, you know, if, if, if there was a God, why would God who f- equals forgiveness and love, why would God create a devil who would rebel about him, uh, against him and cast him out into hell and have him commit evil and have no God-like forgiveness for his own creature, the devil. Yeah. It makes zero sense. Everything breaks down. So, so God could wipe out evil if he wanted. So, so there's, there's actually a rationale about this. And if you look at the uh, season finale, Barbara Hershey's character and, and uh, uh, Robert uh, Weigart's character have this theological debate. And Barbara says, you know, God in the Old Testament is vengeful. He, he has floods. He, you know, destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. He, he's, he's the result. Uh, you know, he, he, he's responsible for millions of deaths. Um, actually, the devil only kills about 10 people. And most of them are under instruction. <laughs> by God. So what we think of the devil in the Bible is not actually really what's there. So so I was trying to go for more of a, a Miltonian view of the devil as that the devil is a, oh, um, no. um, uh, a rebel, uh, a victim of God, um, sort of uh, um, 
you know, sort of like a punk rock attitude. And I was, I was going to have Damien case and go along because if you look at what happens with Damien, he is really in a way is a victim of a vengeful old Testament God in the show. Mm-hmm. So he's what, what I wanted to do was, yes, he's the antichrist, but he's the subject of the horror movie. Okay, so this horror is happening around him. He knows he's responsible for it, and he can't do anything to stop it. He can't run. He tries to give up. He tries to kill himself at one point. He can't. I don't know if you. there was an episode um, where he uh, goes back to his parents' estate. He, he, uh, we had this at the end of, I think, episode five or six. Was that he, the abattoir one? No, it was just before that. Okay, I rewatched the whole thing a couple of days ago. Oh, I hope you yeah. liked it. I did. <laughs> and so, so um, you know, but he he uh, ends up like you know injecting some drugs. He tapes up the garage. Mm-hmm. He he's he's running the car. You know, he's trying to kill himself. And then you know, as he passes out, the tape peels, the door opens, and one of the Rottweilers appears and drags him outside. You know, and the poor guy can't even kill himself. Right. Yeah. He can't check out. So he, 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 he doesn't want this fate. You know, he doesn't want to go down this road. So that was something that I thought was was important so that the audience feels, you know, is sympathetic to him. And is going along. And what I was building to was that at the end, he makes a decision like Christ does. Christ makes a decision to commit to his role as savior to his mm-hmm. role as his his father's son. So so Damien makes a pledge at the end to save you know uh his friend Simone, he makes a pledge and he sacrifices himself. He says, "Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit." Is he actually talking to the devil there or is he talking to God and saying mm-hmm. God's role for me is to be the antichrist either way? He ends up bringing her back to life. He performs a miracle, and that's why, and that would be the basis of the church moving forward. So I really wanted the audience to go along and say, okay, if this guy is going to commit evil, we've spent a season understanding how he got there. And I thought that was important. I, I really enjoyed that that arc for him. I, uh, did you think it played? I mean, you can I be honest. I did. And, and that's, know? I totally did. And that's something that I've enjoyed in all of the Omen movies that I think um, kind of makes them integral and something that was lost for me as we get into like part three and four of the original franchise is that Damien needs that realization of kind of what he is. It's what made um, the second movie is quite possibly one of my favorites of the original four um, because we do get to see that kind of moment where he realizes what he is. And there's not as much inner turmoil going on in him. But when we look at number two, um, and in the first one, the story is not necessarily told from Damien's perspective. It's more from Gregory Peck and his wife's perspective as they realize what their son is. But the second one, we're approaching it from Damien's perspective. And we do see that moment where he, as a teenager, realizes what he is. 
but we're still seeing the human side of him because he still loves people in his family and cares about his cousin and, you know, uh, seems to have some type of humanity. He may have an evil shred to him, but he still seems to not be like serial killer solace. Like he right, has right. something moving behind the mask and emotions. Um, and so I always love that moment in, in part two where he realizes what he is and, and, you know, tries, I think he runs for like 10 minutes in that movie. Like he just starts running. Um, and this, this wonderful moment of kind of the realization of evil and having the, the inner turmoil of, am I evil? I don't feel evil is the things I'm feeling evil. Is this just my fate? Is there nothing I can do about it? And I thought that the show did a phenomenal job of really portraying Damien as human, before that even comes up. I mean, we see him suffering from PTSD. Um, you know, he, he's kind of going through the motions of everything and really struggling with his own inner psychology. Yeah, well, thanks for saying that. I mean, that that's the whole thing. If you look at Christ, Christ is fully, Christ is not half and half. Christ is supposed to be fully human and fully God. So therefore, an antichrist would be fully human and fully devil. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to lead with the humanity, get people invested in that. And, you know, unfortunately the show only went, you know, one season. I like to describe it as this is the show that convinced A&E to get out of the, the scripted business, <laughs> you know, but, but, oh, um, you know, m- moving forward, I was, I was going to build a church. I was going to have like three pillars of the church. You know, I was going to have one was kind of a cult of personality, you know, one was going to be, um, um, uh, uh, what was the group? The Armitage group, Armitage group, which mm-hmm. was, uh, um, you know, sort of Barbara Hershey's evil empire. So he had access to money and weapons and would be waging war. And that would be sort of like a, um, um, you know, like a military contractor where he would, you know, sort of like a thorn industries, but going along yeah. that way. And then I wanted him to kind of in the third season, I liked the idea. I did like that, you know, he was a, a photojournalist and I like the idea of kind of opening it up on a global scale. And so I wanted to have him go into some sort of underground um, um, criminal empire, you know, like so, sort of, you know, the darker side of the world, the, the shadier side of, of, you know, things we don't really hear about and, and just sort of elicit, you know, trade and, 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 and you know, drug cartels and that sort of stuff. And he was going to kind of use that as a basis too, sort of as, as muscle. So he had legitimate muscle and other muscle, but meanwhile, it was this, this cult of personality. And once he had those three in place, then I felt he would probably put in some, you know, puppet politician. I don't think he would be, you know, the president waging war. Mm -hmm. I, I sort of wanted him a little behind the scenes. That's what I think Barbara Hershey taught him. And then I was going to have him bring around a, a world war, you know, and, and at the time when it came out, people felt this is ridiculous. He's a photojournalist. He should be a senator. This isn't Damien. This isn't the Damien we know. We don't understand it. You know, so so critics were kind of brutal on the material at first. And then what happened was, I don't know if they continue to watch it, but fans ended up really loving it as it was going. Oh, this is not what I expected, but watch how this is, is, is playing out. And it's, it's kind of become like a good calling card for me. I think a lot of fans write to me or tweet to me or whatever and say, like, I've watched the show, you know, seven times. I love the show or, or, you know, there's always something new here. Mm-hmm. We, we put a lot of 
effort into it. But I, I wonder if maybe one day I'll, you know, write a novella that kind of tells the rest of the story or something. Cause I did, I did think it was a worthwhile story. Yes. I would love to know what Damien's church functions like, like what become his kind of, um, philosophical beliefs that he would, you know, kind of like, what are his tenets of the church? Um, because I don't think that they would be, you know, they're not going to be innately bad. It's not going to be overt. It's going to have to be kind of a subverted thing where you feel like you're doing good and accomplishing something, but it has this kind of evil end. Um, so yeah. I felt it was important for him to somehow convince his followers. I thought he would really become dangerous. Not when he convinces his followers to kill for him, which is what we see in, in, you know, in say the final conflict. Mm -hmm. I think he would become dangerous where he would convince people to die, to die for him. Yes. And if they would sacrifice themselves, because that's what Christ actually that's what the early Christians that people were willing to sacrifice themselves for their belief. If you could do that, then you've really got something going. Yeah. So that's, that, that's, that's what I want to build to. And, and, and if somebody was able to sacrifice themselves, you know, say the character of Armani, I really loved, or, or even the nun, you know, I was going to, you know, um, um, maybe keep her alive or have them both alive. You know, there's a question about the, in the final one, the hand comes out of the grave. Who is that? I was going to, um, um, uh, if those people ended up sacrificing themselves for him and mm -hmm. the church and, and the audience could say, I totally get that. And the audience is participating in the church of Damien too. So that's, that's what the, uh, goal was. So, um, my next question is kind of looking at the omen overall and kind of what is its sticking power? Because if we look, my, my inclination is that the original omen was somewhat kind of a product of a lot of the religious horrors that we were seeing coming out of the 1970s, things like the exorcist and things like that. But we were kind of seeing this uptick in religious horrors in the early to mid seventies. But that said, the omen has had so much sticking power where we then see it appear and reappear in every single decade. We see it come back in sequels during the eighties and nineties, a reboot in 2006, and then the TV show. So what do you see as the sticking power of this franchise that makes it so constantly topical? I remember in the seventies, there was a movie, I think it was like 79 or something called the late great planet earth. Mm -hmm. Do you remember this movie? I don't, I haven't seen this one. Okay. I'm this was like a it really, down right now. This was a really bad, this was, oh, there's my dog. I'm sorry. There was a really bad documentary that was all about the end of the world and the book of revelation. And they found, you know, Noah's Ark and killer bees were going to get us. And it was just like everything that could go wrong, you know? And this was, it was just a, a stupid documentary, but it was like the most horrifying horror movie I ever saw. I remember I saw it. I was really young and I, I ran out of the theater. I ran into the lobby and my brother came out. It was, it was the first time I realized like, oh, I'm going to die. You know what I mean? I, 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 mean I totally, I had the same thing watching um, some of the apocalyptic nuclear Holocaust movies of the yeah. 1980s. So I totally get it. Yeah. So, so there's something about this that there's just, I think that, um, as opposed to a lot of horror movies that we watch, um, where, you know, it's a serial killer or it's this, or even if it's the exorcist, it's one demon. This is a global conspiracy. This is a global scale. 
of, mm-hmm. of global destruction that is completely out of our hands. You know, it's tied to one person, but it's, it's kind of just, I, I think in a way it's, it's playing to people's powerlessness, mm-hmm. you know, people's feeling of conspiracy, people not understanding the world around them. I think it's just about scale sometimes, you know, that, that, and, and what if there is a plan, but that it's not all going to work out or that there's going to be tremendous pain that we have to go through before it gets better. So I think there's something about that, you know? Um, and then, and then obviously you try to find people there, but you know, the first two movies, if you think about it, even the third movie, you know, they're shot on location, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you do get a sense of, you know, the fourth movie is, is obviously shot in Toronto. It looks very Toronto to me, mm-hmm. but, um, the first three movies, you know, they are trying to, you know, the first movie opens in Rome, I believe. I mean, not it opens on the dig and then you cut to, 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 um, to Rome. So, you know, th- it is trying to kind of give a, a, um, an international, stage to this does that make sense yeah totally and you hit something there that i've always um kind of connected to the antichrist or the the philosophies behind him or her um which is the concept of conspiracy Mm -hmm. and that's one of the things that i think keeps the omen really relevant um and keeps kind of you know our even our larger antichrist horrors really element the idea that there is all of this stuff going on in the world that is happening that is working against us um, that we are not privy to. And the whole idea that, uh, well, specifically in regards to the Antichrist, that it's a slow burn, um, which I've always been amused with Antichrist movies where Satan just pops up on the earth and is like, to hell with you all, and starts taking people down. Um, and, you know, the day of reckoning always seems like, you know, we're, we're just walking around doing our thing one minute, and then the next minute, you know, this is it. This is the end of days. Whereas the Antichrist always seem to have this kind of slow burn approach mm-hmm. of, of it's, it's, you know, there's the conspiracy, there's stages and steps and it's a growing thing. Um, and so I always think that that rings true where there is some type of thing happening that is happening very slowly, but it's turning into something else. Yeah. There's a, a, a foreboding doom. And those stories are really about people who get a glimpse of that coming doom and they try to stop it. You yes. Know? So that that I agree with you. Um, so I've also I also wanted to touch on just briefly about the role of animals because that was something that yes. was always pivotal in all of the films were either dogs or crows or hyena. I mean, he was part jackal and things mm-hmm. like that. Like there was always this strong role of animals, and I wanted to um, ask about how you wove that into the show. Um, that's a good question, you know, because uh, that was something that was there. You know, I mean, I felt like. You know, I mean, we open the the show with with a, a crow. Uh, crows are a big part of that story. You know, um, the Rottweilers, obviously. I mean, Rottweilers are great to shoot with. I believe in the original screenplay, the very it was supposed to be wolves, mm-hmm. and uh, wolves are not really trainable on movie sets. We did have a wolf once on the sh- uh, on the set of the Shield. And wolves are hyper smart. They're like, yeah, I'm not doing that. Uh, you know, they, they conserve their energy. Uh, they're, they're very aloof, you know? And so they had to use Rottweilers because you can train a Rottweiler to look vicious and to bark and, you know, attack somebody. But they're uh, re- really, you know, the ones we had on sweat set were really, really sweet. So yeah. 
So that was really kind of something that was important. I think what you're getting to is that there is a a bestiality, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, part of the Antichrist. Now, there's some confusion as to if the Antichrist is actually the beast or yes. if the beast in the book of Revelation is something else. You know, obviously, the book of Revelation was was written by uh, John on Patmos and it was considered written in code, but some people see it as prophecy. I mean, that's a whole interesting story. But, um, you know, I think it has to do with kind of this this feral savagery. Yes. That that you know if if you know Damien or the Antichrist or or the devil commands that's sort of frightening that's predatory and that's something that I think just is is um, an interesting power for him you know sometimes you see Damien in the movies or my show. You know, sometimes he does command those animals by mm-hmm. some sense. Sometimes it's those animals are just agitated around him, you know. And I think it's just got to do with some, some sort of um, primal savagery, you know, yes. that, that, is, that is just important. And to think that somehow th- those animals are controllable by some force, you know, how would you, how would you, you know, where does that go? How does that, you know, so it, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing. And it was definitely something that we were aware of that we Excellent. felt we needed to, to play with. Well, you have some theories um, behind the omen and kind of what it went on to influence that I would love to hear. Okay. I would say two things. One is obviously, I think that, you know, you end up, we already mentioned, you know, this mousetrap type of death. Mm-hmm. Okay, where you know the the gears on the car shift magically, and the thing backs up, and it's it's all done in editing, and then you know the the you know uh, a plate of glass you know decapitates somebody, or the train crushes somebody, or whatever. I I think you know there's a final destination quality there. Oh, I, I would. I, yeah. I, I, that I don't know if that existed before the omen. I would definitely agree with that. There is um, a fantastic final destination quality. And actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I cannot, I can remember movies where it kind of had the same kind of, is it coincidence? Like there was a movie called Night of the Evil, uh, Night of the Eagle, um, a British movie about um, a, a wife that was dabbling in witchcraft and all this weird stuff kind of just coincidentally started happening um, that, you know, it was always left up to question, you know, is it because she's a witch or is this just happening? Um, And Romero explored that as well in his film season of the witch. But yeah, I, we never have seen it to quite the degree that we see it in the omen to the point where like, um, you know, the brakes will go out and then immediately the music cuts in. And as soon as that famous omen score cuts in, we immediately know, oh, Damon's doing this. Like whether he realizes it or not, some type of otherworldly force is eliminating these people. And I don't think that Damon was aware of it. I think that we have to assume for at least the first two films that Damien was not 
that otherworldly force that it was coming from someplace else because oftentimes in those movies people are dying who who seem to be kind of not necessarily not he's not necessarily hip to what they're doing whether they're investigating or things like that like there is this otherworldly force um unknown kind of working in his favor so yeah i definitely would agree with you that a lot of final destination pulled from that Okay, and then, and you can completely shut me down here. I (laughs) I don't know if this is right. But one of the things that stood out about The Omen is when you have the photographer Jennings take pictures and he goes into the dark room and then you see the, the, the line going through the priest where the priest was killed by the, the falling steeple, right? Mm -hmm. The, The lightning rod comes off the, the church and impales the priest. And so we have photographic evidence of that. And that becomes something that obviously is a major trope in horror movies. Oh, yes. But Um, I can't think of, and tell me where it is, what movie prior to that had photographic evidence of supernatural or something like that. I, I think that, you know, seeing ghosts on film, we have, we'd probably seen before that point, I would say probably in some 1960s films, but the idea really? of a death being predicted, yeah. um, of like seeing the line through somebody's head, I would definitely say that the omen was the first one to pin that. Um, and that is definitely something that we see it later in the final destination films as well, where, you know, it's always looking at the camera and you see this person's head getting de- decapitated like that was the fun of the amusement park one was running around trying to figure out these these death scenes um so yeah even you even have it like say in sinister or you have you Mm -hmm. obviously you know people have a lot of this it becomes a trope where somebody takes a picture and then you go wait a minute that wasn't in the picture when i was taken what's that yeah this weird thing lingering so i so I'm sure yeah, it was in some earlier movies, but for me, that was the first time I really, like, they really made a meal out of it, and, and mm-hmm. uh, I kind of felt like that was an important thing about the omen you know yeah the the element of kind of ghost photography whether or not it was being used on screen as a cinematic device has been around since the 1800s um and and so to finally see it kind of come to fruition and uh really kind of you know be used as this kind of predictive thing of of what's coming was great um the other movie that i would recommend checking out um that i think final day destination pulled a lot from is um and granted i have no idea i've asked craig perry before if he ever saw this um who was the producer of final destination and i'm sure he would he has seen the omen but um and as well as jeffrey reddick who was one of the original writers um and i don't think either of them had seen it but there's an and i want to say early 80s film called soul survivor mm-hmm. about a woman who survives a plane crash and she is the only woman who survives the plane crash and then all of she starts kind of getting picked off like all of these things start happening um and you feel it very much like death is kind of coming for her and it's not quite in the rue goldberg way that we see in the final destination films or the way that we see it in the omen but it's this whole idea of I have survived this plane crash and now I was supposed to die. I am fated to die. So all of these other ways are trying to kill me so much so that it starts infecting other people around her in a very kind of it follows way. Um, it's a really trippy movie, really um, cool, unseen. So yeah, definitely check that one out. But I would say, especially in the mechanisms of the death, Final Destination is totally pulling from the omen. Mm-hmm. And it's a fantastic plot device because we see 
the priest has something bizarre going on with the photo. And then when the death starts spinning into action, it's very much this kind of out of control. It's, it's this faded thing. This, this is going to happen so much so that it was predicted in this photograph. Um, and nothing can stop it. It is fate. And it really does just kind of lean on that idea of you are fated to be this person. Um, but before <clears throat> we wind down the omen, I, I would be amiss if I had you on the show, Glenn, and did not ask a couple of other questions that I've always wanted to ask you. Um, just following you on Twitter and everything, obviously the walking dead, Damien, a lot of the, the product projects that you've worked on have these immense fan followings. And I have always been so impressed about how you, um, interact with the fans on your Twitter, um, how you're, you're so like you respond to them and talk with them and explain things and you're just very responsive. And so I wanted to at least talk briefly about your reactions with the fan, you know, were you expecting this type of fan response and, um, you know, how you support your fan base? Cause it is something that you don't always see in media makers. Oh, that's interesting. Thanks. Uh, people have not really asked me about that. So thank you. Um, and thanks for, for noticing that. Um, yeah, I think, you know, when I, you know, I joined Twitter and, and started, you know, social media presence uh, back when I was on Walking Dead. And the Walking Dead fan base is, is I'll admit, kind of split. You know, I might get in trouble for saying this, but a lot of that fan base is very loving and supportive and excited. And then there are some people who, you know, have a certain view of what that show should be. And they don't like things to be deviated or they don't like things that are not in the comic books or not too mm -hmm. much like the comic books. And so they might call out other fans within that fandom, you know, how you have sometimes, you know, groups within fandom and stuff. And it can, it can get tricky, you know, oh, it, can yeah. get, it can get tricky. So um, I had a great experience connecting with fans. You know, I really enjoyed it. I've actually stayed in touch with a few fans. It was, there was one time that there was this one woman, um, was responding to some tweets and she became friends with this other woman. And we would, we, um, we, uh, live tweeted, um, mega Python versus Gatoroid. Oh God, that's fun. <laughs> I, I love that movie. I love that movie. And, and so we uh, live tweeted and we became friendly. And then they started traveling across the country to see each other and they've become really good friends. And so that's wonderful, you know, so that's a great experience. I still have people that, that tweet to me all the time and stuff. And, and so that, that's been great. Sometimes though, you know, you can get, get called out, you know, that I screwed up that show, or I ruined it, or I was a worse showrunner, or I should be shot, you know, I've had, I mean, really people come after you, that kind of stuff. And that, that can be sort of painful. Mm -hmm. And what I've learned to do is that's okay. You know, say you were a sports fan and you were arguing over which was the best coach for that team or what was this, you know, people have opinions and that's good. You want them to be excited. So I don't ever feel the need when somebody says something to react negatively or to defend. That's just somebody's opinion and it could be painful, but I let it go. And as I do that, I just am really focused on trying to put out positive stuff. And I find that when I do put out positive stuff, it creates more positive stuff. I'm not the first mm -hmm. person to ever be trolled on the internet. I'm not the first person to ever have somebody say something negative about on the internet. 
you know, and, and sometimes it's funny, you know, I mean, there was one time that somebody posted a meme of a garbage can being thrown across a school cafeteria and they were like, Oh, Glenn Mazzaro went back to school. (laughs) It was kind of brutal. Somebody once posted a picture of me next to the Sid, the shrew from ice age saying that I look the same. And actually I do do. like that creature. I do. It's embarrassing. So it's kind of funny. So, you know, you just kind of have to take it and roll with it. And I think what's important is just to kind of be, to realize that there's so much negative stuff out there on the internet that I don't want to be a part of that. I want to put Mm -hmm. out positive stuff. I try to engage people. I I try to put out kind of some goofy, funny stuff. You know, I mean, there's so much you know, negative press that you could retweet and slam this or slam that. And, and, and I don't, I don't want to put that out there. You know what I mean? That's just not, other people could do that. That's fine. But I, I don't think that helps me. It doesn't make me feel good. It doesn't help my writing. And, and, and the fact that when I do post stuff, I'm kind of surprised at how much of a reaction something could get, mm-hmm. you know, like I posted about, I posted about the Oscars and I got something like 18,000 likes. Wow. You know, and like 7,000 retweets on this thing and it got p- picked up in like articles and stuff. And I was like, okay, people are really watching this. So that's great. I'm not, I'm not bragging about that, but I'm just like, I got, you got to be careful what you put out there. I think, I think maybe learning as a writer and as a producer, I'm very careful about the images I put on the screen. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to really be inclusive. You want to be responsible. You don't want things to be gratuitous. So I think I extend that philosophy to my social media presence. Totally. No, thank you. I, I've always been so, um, that was actually one of the focuses of my dissertation when I did that like years ago now. Um, I focused uh, a good couple of chapters on how media makers at the time were interacting with fans. And that has only escalated and grown um, since I wrote that chapter like seven years ago. Mm -hmm. At the time, I focused a lot of it on the My Little Pony Friendship is Magic show, which at the time, I remember that they had this character... that was actually made by mistake where it was this pony with cross eyes Mm -hmm. that uh, some of the fans had picked up on and named it Derpy, I think. And uh, the fact that then at Comic-Con the next year, the My Little Pony brand, Mattel, released a poster of this kind of accidental character that had just become a fan favorite, you know, was a real kind of call and response. And I remember that being one of the first times that I had seen like this kind of growing fervor in the fans and then somebody saying, oh, hey, we're listening to you. And now it has grown into what you're talking about where you can interact and it's it's much more about being careful about what you're putting out there, but kind of growing these friendships and fostering this community around the media. And so thank you. It's something that I never get to talk about on the yeah, show, but it, yeah. It, you know, and, and the other thing is I would never, I would never go to fans for, you know, what should I write mm-hmm. or, or, you know, I mean, obviously when I'm creating a show, you know, you're, you want, you know, people to enjoy it. You want to have a positive audience reaction, but I would never, um, you know, I think sometimes fans might think that, that they can influence 
the creative process. Maybe that's true on some shows, but a lot of times by the time we put something out there, it's already gone through the mill and everything. So it's more yeah. about just, I think, keeping people excited and, 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 and engaging. And I enjoy it. I do enjoy social media. You know, I mean, it gets tiresome, but, you know, yeah. sometimes you, you have to keep it in balance like everything else. But I, 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 you know, I've actually feel like I've gotten to know a few people and, and that's that's been heartening. That's great. Um, and on fan media and, and kind of, you know, having to carry the torch on these previously existing IPs, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about how you pr- um, approach Dark Tower and tell us about the backstory of that. Well, Dark Tower, <clears throat> thanks for asking. Um, Dark Tower, obviously based on Stephen King's, you know, magnum opus. Mm-hmm. And uh, three years ago uh, in 2017, I was, I was approached by a studio, MRC. To come in and and uh, you know maybe you know have a conversation about how would I approach adapting that material, and I've read a lot of Stephen King. I had adapted something for for King. Uh, I, I wrote a movie called Overlook Hotel for Warner Brothers that was nice. shelved so that they made they made Doctor Sleep instead. But um, but uh, when I connected with King, I, I sort of took stock of how much of him I, I had read. And I, at that time, I had read about 22 novels. So I am a Stephen King fan. Mm-hmm. But I had not gone into Dark Tower. I had not read that that material. So I read some of it. And I came in and I had a conversation. I said, this is a big, wieldy mythology. And what I would do is double down on the characters, really kind of you know, spend time with the characters, understand that, and not get too much into the world hopping the you know uh, be into world building and character building but i wouldn't worry too much about the rules of the different timelines and the portals and that sort of stuff i, w- I, mm-hmm. would, I would sort of start slower and and get the wor- everybody acclimated to the 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 characters so we um we had a couple of different writers rooms you know we had one writers room and then we sold it to amazon we ended up writing two scripts had another writers room they got picked up had another writers room and 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 ended up writing all the scripts and last year we shot a huge pilot in croatia and you know i was very proud of it whatever but i think it was a very very expensive endeavor was huge, you know, and, and Amazon has Lord of the Rings and Wheel of Time and, and other big properties or whatever. So I think there just wasn't a seat at the table for us. So unfortunately, it didn't go. But I was really proud of it. And I felt like, you know, I was I love the actors. We had a guy named Sam Strike playing Roland. We had uh, we were um, sort of taking the the um, early Roland story from Wizard in Glass, which is the fourth novel, the flashback. Mm-hmm. So we had this terrific actress named Joanna, uh, Joanna Ribeiro, who um, was playing Susan. We just had, you know, really just great actors and, and you know, world building and, and all of that. So I was um, um, really proud of it. And, and um, unfortunately, it didn't get picked up. So now I think that's just going to sit in my computer and I'm moving on to other projects. That's, that's, that's the risk we take in Hollywood, but I, I really love, there was, there was a lot there. It was, it was really a, a great experience. 
That's fantastic. Well, you mentioned other projects, which leads me to my last question, which has absolutely nothing to do with the omen. Um, well, I guess it kind of does actually. Um, and the whole idea of, you know, uh, feeling like the end of days sometimes, but you would be the perfect person to ask about this. Where are we headed? Like, how does the industry get started back up? I've heard, um, and I've, I've, heard, you know, from my agent and this is what my manager thinks and this is what SAG thinks. What, but, what do they um, think? So I keep hearing things like cruise less than 30, um, eliminate all craft services. Everyone brings their own lunchbox. Um, uh, uh, everything must be filmed outdoors whenever possible, open air tents and things like that. Um, no kissing scenes, testing on set every two days. I have heard so much stuff over the past couple of weeks. And so I was intrigued to see if you had any theories on kind of what is going to be the new normal going forward. Well, uh, it's funny you say that because I'm actually involved in the Writers Guild um, uh, on, on a, a, I guess, a panel who's, you know, that's looking at this. And those guidelines are right. I think people are going to look at those guidelines. We're going to look at others. I think really what you're going to see is that a lot of stuff is going to be delayed as long as possible so that, you know, uh, you know, once we have a vaccine, um, I think that'll, you know, solve a lot of this. But I don't see people right now. We're in May. There is some talk from some people about shooting starting to shoot in August or September, but that involves shooting in countries that have the virus under control, like say Australia mm-hmm. has done a really good job. Um, other people here in the States are thinking about maybe, um, you know, smaller level shows, you know, st- shows that be- could be contained on a stage or something, um, possibly October. I'm hearing not even September, but October. But I'm involved in uh, several projects and we're developing and, and, you know, I have crowd scenes, I have kissing, I have all the stuff you're just saying <laughs> totally. you know, that you're not supposed to have. And I think all of this stuff is just going to have to wait until, you know, 2021 until there's some, until we wait and see, you know, I think, I think it's interesting because there was a lot of talk, you know, development wise, everybody was looking for the new Game of Thrones. Yep. I'm not hearing that right now. You know, no, that kind of, that kind of went, um, same yeah. thing in the horror world. Like we, there was, there was a number of kind of, you know, this is what everybody's looking for. And those have gone away in the past couple of months. Yeah. Because, because I think these studios are bleeding money. They're carrying a lot of costs. I think a lot of them have been, you know, terrific about, you know, paying people, crew members who are out of work, carrying those costs, all of that. So, uh, people have really responded well you know, as far as I know. Um, but they're hemorrhaging money. So I think they're going to look at smaller stuff. I think from what I'm hearing is people are not really looking at dark material. Mm-hmm. You know, people are kind of looking for, they think they think the audience is, is going to kind of, you know, want um, more positive, more uh, uh, optimistic fare. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe. You know, that's that's probably what some people are thinking, you know. I don't um, know if I agree with that. Yeah, I don't um, know. I don't know. Yeah, I think I think a great way to deal with this is through horror, you know, yeah, through his- escapism, you know. 
Yeah, historically, I mean, anytime we have any type of national tragedy or some type of like big, big impactful event, um, 9-11, you know, Vietnam War, mm-hmm. horror always gets dark. It never gets about it. Like, I don't think we're going to see a rash of pandemic films after this. That is way too on the nose for society. Um, but I would not say that everyone's going to gravitate towards just happy material. I think that for some people, their catharsis will be working it out on screen in films like, you know, Saw or Hostel, which came right after 9-11. Right. But I wonder if the TV development executives will pursue that. You know, you might have to have some disruptive filmmaker or Mm -hmm. somebody else. You know, you might have to have some movie come out that does that. But I don't think that the um, I'd be surprised if the development execs are going to look for that material. Yeah. That is totally correct. No, they will start hunting um, happy stuff. Yeah. Uh, We'll see. I mean, it's, it's, um, you know, I think it's actually, I mean, my life has been, you know, I've been working at my desk. I had been doing that, you know, since Dark Tower wasn't picked up. So, you know, I'm developing several things. um, And I know other writers are developing. So I think it's actually you know, I mean, yes, the pandemic's horrible and and all of that, but from a a business standpoint, the writers are the ones who can generate work right now. Mm -hmm. Everybody else is sort of in a holding pattern. So it's actually, um, um, if there are writers listening, I'm sure there are, I would say now is the time to really kind of, you know, take advantage of this pause and, and, you know, develop your material and try to get it out there. Cause I think people are going to be looking for different type of material. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, thank you. That that's very uplifting and far more positive than a lot of the stuff that I have heard, you know, kind of more of a, get, we're going to get through this and just keep working approach. So thank you for that. Glenn, thank you for joining us overall. This was a fantastic talk. Um, and uh, thank you again. Okay, so we are back. Um, So listening back at that interview, God, I was filled with so much pandemic hope. (laughs) Um, That was kind of my takeaways in the final moments of it when I'm like, so how are we going to get out of this? Are we seeing light at the end of the tunnel? And that was back in like April. And now, like in February, a year later, and I feel grizzled and like I have not put on makeup. Damien Thorne is leading the country or (laughs) no. (laughs) I don't even feel compelled to put on pants most morning beyond sweatpants. So yeah, yeah, God, I was so optimistic and full of hope in April of last year talking about when we're going to get back to set and we're still trying to fucking figure that shit out. Yeah, it'll happen. Where we are. Oh, I know. I know. And people are... People are doing it and things are still getting shut down, but we're getting better. Yeah. I just got my COVID test today to go to a, a, a talking headset um, oh, next week where cool, I get cool. to, you know, talk about the history of horror and stuff. So, yeah, we're getting there. But um, anyway, so we have to do a deep cut. We're going deep. We're going to go deep here. Actually, this is this is a pretty good deep cut. Um, this is a 
damn good deep cut. So I had not heard of this one. I, I don't think I had either when I when I found about this. So this is made a this movie is made literally one year after Omen. <laughs> so we're talking quick turnaround deep cut. Uh so I did years ago, literally maybe three or four years ago, uh on Pearson, one of our first episodes was a ripoffs episode uh with Steven Scarlatta. Friends of our show, both oh, of us yeah. made, uh, produced, yeah, J- Jodorowsky's Dune, great guy. Uh, we did a ripoff episode. Cut to three years later, Quentin Tarantino is on our show, and we start talking to him, and he goes, ah, I do have a bone to pick with you guys. They're, they're, uh, I, I was listening to your ripoff one the other night, and we're like, you're listening to one of our episodes, so our our, our uh, world is being already kind of uh, blown away. And then he goes, yeah, yeah, and and he goes, I wanted to add my picks. I'm like, he's giving us a, an adjoining conversation from four years ago, and I'm like, uh, dude, okay, go ahead. And his the one of the big ones was he is like, you know, the greatest. He was actually. Um, in challenging a movie we're going to be talking about in a few minutes. That's a one that I like a lot. He, he was saying, no, no, the best Omen ripoff by far is Holocaust 2000. And then he just started talking about this movie, uh, which I had never heard of. Um, it's an Italian director, Alberto uh, Martino, who I've since seen a couple things of. And he actually did an Exorcist and a Godfather ripoff in years around this too. So he was doing a lot of this kind of riffing. Uh, and yeah, he just was really talking it up. So I was like, oh, I got to find out if there's any way to see this. And then I came to learn it's more popularly known here in America because Screen Factory just put it out on blue called The Chosen with Kirk Douglas. So so that's where most people probably don't find it initially is because Holocaust 2000 is no longer, you know, the title that people will easily find this movie. Um, but yes, it's so it's, you know, it's doing what The Omen's doing, which is casting a major star in an elevated, you know, big scale horror film, um, political, you know, kind of drama, uh, being Kirk Douglas in this case. Uh, but yeah, I'll let you, because you just watch, I'll let you uh, kind of yeah. tell the story of it. So I had not heard of this movie at all until Elric texted me and was like, why don't we cover Holocaust 2000 is the deep cut. And I was like, what the hell is that? <laughs> Fabulous movie. Fun score. This is an Eno Marconi mm-hmm. score. Super fun score. But the setup is that Kirk Douglas, who is definitely aging at this point, um, is has discovered this alternate source of power. And they're kind of vague on what it is. It's like nuclear, but a little bit more dangerous. And he decides that he is going to open up this kind of power plant. And it's got these six giant pillars of, I don't know what they're doing, like some type of osmosis or something. There's like these six pillars that are required to create whatever this alternate source of power is. I'm pretty sure it's definitely nuclear, but I don't know beyond that. Yeah. Yeah. You understand that it's kind of nuclear based, that there's something evil about it. And there's this huge protest surrounding it. These people protesting. And where are they? They're building it next to something. It's like a ruins or something. And next to some old classic, something important. Like It's next to some type of old, you get the idea that it's like a religious Mm -hmm. archival ruin that people find really sacred. And not only that, it's like fucking up the environment in the process, they think. And he's like, no, no, this is the future of clean energy. Like he thinks he is being altruistic and kind of saving the world with this. Um, But there are these huge riots surrounding it, that it's destroying the environment, that this is going to destroy the globe and all this stuff. And what he begins to discover, he starts having these kind of visions and 
all of these weird kind of religious incidents start happening. He starts dating this woman um, who, you know, seems kind of suspicious at moments. Um, She seems to have his baby, like she's having his baby. There's this scene where he tries to get her to walk into this church and she's refusing to the point where it seems to be burning her. Which happens Um, to Damien and Omen 1. He doesn't. And I will say... She's like 20 years old and Kirk Douglas is definitely like pushing his 70s at this point. I don't know if he's that, is he that old? I guess he could have been that old in the 70s. There were some weird sex scenes. I will say that. Um, But, but that's love is love. So go for it, guys. You know, who am I to fucking judge? So you know what? I'll shut up right there. Um, There was a nightmare in the the, the most memorable moments. Like he has a nightmare of, of those things you were talking about, those five five um uh, nuclear reactors let's call them and that turning into like a hydra monster type thing and that's kind of stuff's wild it's supposed to be kind of this apocalyptic vision that he has where it's like the apocalypse will come with this like six-headed beast and then he realizes that this thing that he has created is that and it goes on it's like literally like a 10 minute sequence where he's slowly picturing the beast and then he slowly pictures his power plant and then he slowly pictures the beast again and then eventually the beast starts flashing over the top of the power plant and they become one which we all knew was coming like 20 minutes ago but it's okay it's a cool scene um and then he begins to realize that um he is bringing on the antichrist and he becomes convinced that it is either this unborn son in the 20 something he's dating or it's his adult son who is the heir to the company and either way the devil's gonna use what he has he created something he thought for good for profit but also for good but it's gonna be the end of the world so it is really very close to the omen in a lot of ways it's kind of like a mixture of omen one and two and three yeah together in one movie in some ways um, but it, but it's fun. I wouldn't want to say too much more about it, but it's a, it's a nice surprise. If you like those kind of movies, I could see other people being bored, but if you like these kind of stories, you're going to enjoy this one because it is actually a good, it's a good rip because people are, you got ta- artistry. You've got a good, ta- great actors like Kirk Douglas and your Marconi. These are not people that are going to make it feel cheap, you know? And it does feel like Euro trash to a degree, but it is good Euro trash. Yeah. Like the acting is really good. The story's compelling. Like there was never a time in this movie where I was not fully captivated. Yeah. No, but it's, it is also wild when this, when movies like this, that could be that close. And this is a big production coming out literally one calendar year after the Omen. Yeah. You're like, that's pretty wild. That's a fast turnaround. And when I was researching it today, it talked about how it was literally greenlit because of the success yeah. of the Omen yeah. and saying, Oh, we've got this antichrist. Let's do this. Yeah, no, I love it. I love how these happen. Um, but you were just talking about Euro trash. Uh, that seems like the perfect segue for a little section we like to call movie fight. But this one's this one's fun because this again it all fits perfectly into this today's topic. So these, this has just been a bit of a joy to link all these movies. But um, there was a connection I didn't realize when I picked these two when I first suggested them, which is just blowing my mind. Minutes before I got, we're going to actually call this an ass off. Wait, what? <laughs> yes. Uh, be concerned because both films. I know this connection. No, yes. No, you don't. I, I only just decided in the moment that I said that to call it that because actually I was going to say in my notes it says Asinitas off. But then I'm like, wow, who needs that whole word when I can call it ass off because Asinitas directs one of these movies and is the producer of the other. So both oh, of them, shit. I know. And I was like, oh, shit, I hadn't even realized that. I, I hadn't put it together. So uh, we are having an ass off. Um, and this will go down in the history books <laughs> on our show. Um, but the first ass is, uh, came out, the first movie is interesting. Uh, it came out 
before the Omen, and it's more of an Exorcist ripoff, but it also has Omen story elements, even though it's before it. And that is a really a bonkers uh, American set film called Beyond the Door. So Beyond the Door is 1974, set in San Francisco about a housewife um, who honestly has a total tool of a husband. This guy, I just hate this guy. Um, and in the movie, she becomes pregnant, much to her husband's fucking dismay. Because I mean, they have kids, right? They have a couple kids already. They have yeah. two kids. And then she's like, I'm pregnant again. And he's like, but we've been on birth control pill. I'm very unamused by this. I don't care about your life as a housewife. I don't want to deal with the children. And he's just such Wait, a- wait, wait. In his defense. No, continue. <laughs> I'm not going to go there. Anyway, their kids are where the bonkersness begins because she is honestly like the most normal thing in the movie. Um, But she gets pregnant and all of a sudden she starts kind of exhibiting this weird behavior. And she becomes convinced that not only is um, she a little bit possessed, but it's all rooting because the child she is about to get birth to is actually a demon. And she has become kind of, she now has this demon inside her that is also infecting her. And, um, but I will say the bonkersness begins long before that. Like she first gets clued in. There's this moment where she comes in and she fucks up her husband's fish tank. Like literally like she looks at it and the whole thing like explodes. Um, and her husband loves that fish tank far more than he seemed to love her. Um, and it's a great scene, but before that even begins, they have two kids, um, the son may be six, the daughter may be eight, but the son drinks soup through a straw compulsively to the point where it almost feels like a spoof movie in that regard. Cause he's constantly drinking soup, pea soup. What's again, one of our example, one of our favorite subgenres, which is it's America, but from Italy's perspective, you know? So again, that soup thing with the straw, it's like, I bet that's what Americans do. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It feels, it feels very, very odd. Um, but then also in It's America from Italy's perspective, they clearly wanted to make the daughter, who is maybe eight, nine years old, kind of edgy. So she curses constantly. Like everything. She's like, that fucking dipshit. And I mean, and she says it so casually and her parents don't even notice. Well, and that's going to be the big connector between the two her. movies, swearing little girls. Uh, swearing little girls. <laughs> but yes, in this, it is just so casually where she's in the back of the car and she's like, my brother's being an asshole dipshit and yeah. the parent, fuck that kid. And the parents don't, they're like, oh, oh, you. And it's just so kind of just bizarre, um, especially because everything she says is dubbed. So the the actual cursing is not what we're actually seeing. Yeah, no, totally. It's wild. Yeah, this one's always had a big um, reputation. I mean, it also has a couple, like a heavily gift moment, like an incredible exorcist head spinning mom's head is spinning right around while she's strapped down on the bed moment which is you know there's some really cool moments like that some really crazy gross pea soup type moments uh got some levitation yeah um this one did get sued by warner brothers yeah um this and that's and what yet I there's think how many beyond the doors before. like beyond the door right? two three so yeah like baba shock is two yes. and i have not seen part three yet but yeah. it made enough money and made enough acclaim in the states that they kept making it. even though they're not actual sequels and they have no story yeah. relevance they're, they're, they're not even really exorcist ripoffs except this one but yeah so this i i think this one's just a fun wacky it was hard to see for a long time or it was kind of crappy only recently because did a good version yeah. yeah warner brothers 
lawsuit and apparently it was settled in like a private sense, but um, eventually it was able to get a release here in the States. So this one is directed by Ovidio G. Asanitas, who also did Tentacles, uh, which we all know, um, but he produces, um, and he was actually very heavy hand in the how this film turned out from stories I've heard. Um, this other movie that uh, I will talk about anywhere on any street corner on planet Earth, and, and that is... <laughs> The Visitor from 79. So we're talking two year, three years after The Omen. Um, so The Visitor is my ultimate what the fuck is happening movie. I have seen this movie so many times, probably more than a lot. I've seen it more than The Omen. I've seen it yeah. more than The Exorcist. I still do not have a goddamn clue what is happening throughout most of this movie. I do not understand anybody's end game. Um, space which I will Jesus get. is the key. That's all you need to know. Space Jesus. Franco so Nero. Space Jesus. So it starts with Franco Nero playing Space Jesus. And he's talking to this room of bald children about this Satan-esque character named Satine who shows up on Earth and impregnates all of these women with the Antichrist. And then this old kind of Godfather character shows up John, it's um famous actor John Houston. Thank you, Hudson. Hudson um shows up. It's spelled a little different, but it's Houston. Thank you, John Houston shows up and is like, we've got another one. She's an eight year old girl, and then he somehow hops in like this very seventy nine, you know, flashy teleporter and ends up on Earth. And you think he is there to kind of take down this eight year old girl, but at one point he becomes her babysitter. Seems to be trying to become her best friend. Keeps talking about how neither of them are of earth and their kindred spirits and all this stuff. And I have no fucking clue what anyone's end game is at this point. You, um, you know what, you know what's crazy if you, cause I, I wouldn't have been able to answer that, but on Wikipedia, whoever wrote that entry, they like kill it with like, <laughs> they're talking about all these like demons and the intergalactic warrior who, and the cosmic Christ figure and the multidimensional warfare. And I'm look, I'm reading it going, wow. Like you actually charted the storyline of this movie, which is wild. I have to read uh, it because the whole time, even the little girl who is playing the antichrist. So we established early in that her mom is, is in, has this satine gene it is able to make these satanic babies these babies that are the antichrist so there is literally an illuminati as coalition that are trying to get her pregnant again so they can have another one but, but i love that it starts with the atlanta hawks basketball team that lance henriksen <laughs> is the manager of and somebody's owner. yeah owner. Owner. and then somebody does a slam dunk and the backboard explodes because of her telekinetic powers and then he goes to the board of the basketball and it turns out to be this illuminati and i was like holy shit what is going on this is amazing <laughs> um somehow Glenn Ford and Sam Peckinpah are in this. Oh yeah, and Sam Peckinpah apparently is so drunk that all his lines are dubbed. He couldn't remember a single word of his lines, so they had to dub him. So yeah, there's a couple directors because John Houston's a famous director, Peckinpah's a famous director. Yeah. Glenn Ford's really yeah. interesting, Mel Ferrer. Kelly Winters yes. in it. As a babysitter. <laughs> as a baby. She's more of like the housekeeper yeah. and she shows up to protect the mom who has the Satan gene and seems to be trying to stop the daughter, but then you find out that mom is actually going to make another antichrist. So it's confusing why Shelly Winters is trying to protect her. I don't understand anyone's motivation and end game in this movie. Yeah. It is a bunch of people running around and then there's space Jesus. You can follow it all, but you might not know, like you can't know the intricacies of like the real, if, like, it's like, it'd be like if Lord of the Rings just gave you broad strokes and expected you to understand all that plot. It is like that, but you can totally follow it as a fun wacky scene after scene movie. I will watch this movie every single time yeah. and still have no clue what is going on but I will always 
watch it. I, I'm just gonna. I'm. Stuff. I'm not gonna bury the lead. Uh, this is like uh, as far as movie fights go. This is somebody brought Death Wish, and we were holding Death Wish three. I'm sorry, but this is like you came with a knife to a bazooka fest. I'm sorry. As much as I like Beyond the Door, because it is fun. Beyond the Door, I highly recommend you watch it. But the Visitor is in my top five all time movies seen in a movie theater because the first time I saw this was right when the Draft House had kind of re re brought it back, and I think I started Cine Family. And not everyone had the same impact, but I was just like, this is the most fun you could have in a movie theater because it's just scene after scene of wild shit and it's hilarious, but it's also good. It's got some really cool stuff. There's a scene where like she's the Antichrist child is ice skating and boys start chasing her, but she's throwing them against walls with her mind on ice skates and space grandfather Jesus. And she swears constantly to Glenn Ford. The Glenn Ford scenes are really crazy she's just like laying into him Fuck yeah. you, it's yeah. just i don't even know what's going on and as you um, said at the start it has an amazing score or you might have said off air yeah so this one has this like huge like it's basically like eye of the tiger every single time the one of the space Jesus disciples is about to get close to her you see this like boom, 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 boom. it's yeah, like this and then it breaks in with this like funk eye of the tiger where you literally feel like he's about to like punch, like box somebody. Um, it's this super like amped up funk score um, that kicks in anytime he is about to do anything. Um, there's this time where his like weird space Jesus army of like blind do- uh, bald guys in tracksuits show up and um, with briefcases. You don't even know what's in the briefcases. We don't even find out what is in the briefcases, but bald guys in track shoots show up and it is the funkiest like fuck yeah we're taking these people down score ever the key to um, understand it you have to have just seen the last act of el topo to really understand the movie it's kind <laughs> of tied together it's once he's a bold character in el topo it just kind of translates better that way uh no this this is this is about as wild and i will say at that screening i was at they brought in the the, the one american on this film was the screenwriter and he came to the screening and he told I would butcher them as stories, but they were two of the craziest stories I've ever heard that basically one of them was that when he meant to meet the director, he had the script. So back in the days where it's typed a hundred page script, he goes into the guy's room and goes, here is the final script. And the director looks and goes, nah, fuck that walks to the window and throws it out like a movie where hundreds of pages scatter in the wind gone forever. That was the end of the script. So he said, yes, I have a screenwriting credit, but my script went out the window. I don't know what this is. <laughs> so they took parts of a story and he literally said, no one ever saw that script again. And I was like, okay, that's an amazing story. And the other crazier one is the producer. I think it was that the producer ended up firing the director because uh, Michael Paradis uh, over creative differences, something crazy the guy wanted. And he gets home. The producer walks to his apartment and standing outside the door of his apartment is a mafioso guy who holds a gun on him and says, you will rehire the director tomorrow or you will be killed. And he rehires the director to finish the movie. And it's like, that's the girl. I mean, seriously, and this guy was telling us these stories where I'm just sitting there going for this movie. It only makes it all the, all the more okay. magical. So I have a different path with this movie where I first saw this when I was um, binge watching every horror I could find yeah. at the video store. So I was probably maybe 12, 13 wow. watching it for the first time, had no goddamn clue what was going on. 
did not rent it again. Whereas something like Return of the Living Dead, I was going to rent over and over again to the point where I could recite it. This I did not rent again because I didn't know what was happening and it just didn't click with me. But then when I got to college, it became like this fevered dream where I was having flashes of like space Jesus and hawks and- Yeah, you're right. Um, a lot of animal text, a lot of bird attack stuff, stridulum stuff. Women, be- a woman being thrown down the stairs by an eight-year-old girl and just and the ice skating scene and weird shit. And I was having fevered dreams of it until one of my friends finally said, oh, that's the visitor. And then I rewatched it and like, oh my God, this is brilliant. That's this so is cool. just sheer madness. Oh, and I can't I imagine if I'd seen it as a kid. <laughs> I can't imagine. I, I, it, was, it, it hit me the same way that Dune hit me oh, when yeah. I watched it as a kid. I did not understand it to the point where I became disinterested from it. And it wasn't until later that I started seeing flashes of it and then suddenly went, holy shit, I got to rewatch that. Like whatever it was, I did not understand it at the time, but it stayed in my brain enough that like somehow later I realized it had more to it. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So if you would listen to us, one thing from this episode, it's that The Visitor will, if you've never seen it, and this is your first time hearing people go into it, absolutely watch it. Uh, there's a great podcast called The Projection Booth. They just do single episodes, but I remember their episode on The Visitor as being one of the best because I think they get an interview with Lance about it, and he just had no clue what the hell that movie was about. It's kind of it's kind of fascinating to hear. Um, but yes, I love this one, and Alamo Drafthouse have it on a Blu-ray, and it's just the greatest. So sorry, Beyond the Door. We like you. Yeah, but, sorry, beyond the door, know, we'll, we'll get you. This sometime. was a slapping of a fight, so <laughs> yes, there's no way you could ever be Jesus, space Jesus. So well, Zatine. I think that's all the Satan, satanic, uh, uh, you know, D- Damien uh, love we can fit into one episode. Well, um, I have no idea what we're doing next. Oh well, we'll be in a whole new month, so we'll have to figure yeah, out what's going month. on in a month. We'll figure out where we're going. But uh, in the meantime, hope to see all of you all for another Antichrist movie, Day of the Beast, which we will be screening on the twenty sixth, um, which you can find details of on our socials. Otherwise, um, please check out our Patreon show, Deep Cuts, and uh, follow us on socials. Thank you all so much for uh, listening and all of the support, and we will see you in two weeks. See you then. The Colors of the Dark podcast is a Fangoria production. Producers and co-hosts are Rebecca McKendry and Elric Kane. Executive producers are Tara Ainsley and Abby Gould. Associate producer is Jessica Soth of Amir. Sonic branding by Michael Rodriguez. And of course, our amazing sound engineer, Ernie Hurtado. 